howdy there, partners. Welcome to another episode of Pick 6 Movies. While the rest of the world is stuck in Season 11, we're all gonna die, we had the decency to move ahead to Season 12. In fact, we made it to Episode 2 of Season 12. This season is entitled As Seen on TV. And if this is your first time here, you may be asking yourself, what's all this business with seasons and episodes? Well, here's how we do it. We pick a theme, aka the season, and then we decide on six movies based around that theme. As I mentioned, this season it happens to be as seen on TV. Episodes discussing movies that were once upon a time available for free on the small screen instead of paying your good hard-earned money for the big screen versions of them. Most of which are poop. We whip a little story on you on the front end. You know, just to give you some background on the movie or maybe an interesting anecdote or story making a larger point, hopefully something that elucidates the human experience in some way. But most of the time, it's just an excuse to make some more jokes. Then we're going to walk through the movie, every nook and cranny of this movie, entitled Wild Wild West. That's right, the one with the theme song and Will Smith and Kevin Kline and body doubles. It's quite something. We'll get to all that in a minute. First, here's Chad to give you that knowledge I was talking so highly of, and I'll see you on the other side. Chad, take it away. Let me ask you a question. When you think about the most popular scripted television shows on American network TV, over the past 20 years, what shows come to mind? Again, I said scripted TV shows, so eliminate all those reality shows and TV singing competitions and D-list celebrity ballroom dancing things. And don't include all of the cutting-edge good stuff over on HBO and all the streaming services. I'm just talking about American network TV shows. Come on, what? just shout them out. What, what, do, you, what do you think of? Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, The Good Wife. Law and Order, House ER, all those, the CSIs, the NCISs, exactly. And when you look at many of the network television series over the past few decades, you see that many of them are set against three primary fields of work, medicine, law enforcement, and the judicial system. Or to say it another way, a doctor show, a cop show, or a courtroom drama. Now, if in the real world, you're dealing with a doctor, a cop, or a lawyer, your life is certainly full of drama. And I, for one, am quite interested in the outcome of what's going down with you. And it is drama that makes for compelling storytelling in the real world and on television. But once upon a time, as televisions began to glow one by one in living rooms across the United States, the dramatic tales being told took place in more rural settings with clearly defined heroes, villains, and a moral sense of right and wrong. And these television dramas helped to define the legacy of America's expansion westward just as the country entered into the nuclear age. In June of 1949, the television show Hopalong Cassidy debuted to audiences across America. The show was initially just edited versions of the 60-plus minute feature films that were shown to audiences in movie theaters a few years earlier. This practice of recycling movie westerns allowed television networks to fill airtime as they slowly figured out what type of garbage Americans really wanted to watch. Many of these edited down feature films were geared towards children initially, as most of these movies were plucked from matinee double features and they really didn't contain a lot of questionable content and therefore were suitable for everyone to enjoy on television. Many Americans, young and old, 
in the late 40s grew up listening to westerns as radio dramas for years before the arrival of television. Transitioning their familiar characters, storylines, and settings to the small screen was comforting and familiar to a growing number of television viewers, many of whom were adults and turns out the target audience for advertisers. And with a desire to entertain a more mature segment of TV viewers, the life and legend of Wyatt Earp and the adaptation of Gunsmoke from Radio 2 Television gave older audiences something to sit up and pay attention to on their 16-inch black-and-white television screens. The success of these shows led to more westerns on the air. Cheyenne, The Lone Ranger, The Rifleman, they all quickly followed. And then just 10 years later, westerns were so popular that they dominated all three networks' primetime programming with over 100 western series airing between 1949 and the late 1960s. And westerns were consistently among the highest rated programs on television as audiences watched good guys defeat bad guys in a fictionalized version of the Old West that helped define America's formidable years forever in the public eye. The heroes in westerns were strong, decent, reliable, and they fought for justice. Westerns usually ended up with the righteous prevailing, and a lesson was learned by the folks on the show and for the good people at home watching on TV. Westerns embraced honesty, hard work, integrity, a determination to succeed, fairness, racial harmony, and justice for all. You know, all the things that every American today readily has available to them regardless of their skin color, religious affiliation, or sexual orientation. Oh wait, that's right, westerns were fictional accounts of America's past. Sure, the historical accuracy of many television westerns were questionable at best, but it is undeniable that westerns were a defining genre of American television and film as they became a nostalgic eulogy to the expansive, untamed American frontier, a period that marked a defining moment between the wilderness of the American West and the unstoppable manifest destiny that civilized much of North America from coast to coast. In 1959, Time Magazine reported that eight of the top ten shows on TV were horse operas. The networks have saddled up no fewer than 35 of the Bangtail Brigade, and 30 of them are riding the Dollar Green range of prime night time. The granddaddy of all westerns, Gunsmoke, had a 20-year run and cranked out 365 episodes over on CBS, making it the longest-running scripted television series ever until The Simpsons beat it with 366 after a 29 season, but who's keeping score? Back in the 1950s, westerns were everywhere. Have Gun Will Travel, Tales of Wells Fargo, Laramie, Wagon Tree, Rawhide, Bat Masterson, The Rifleman, Bonanza, just to name a few. And then the 60s rolled in, and boy, the times they were a-changing. And as westerns shifted from the black and white duality of a simpler time into the technicolor world of the volatile 60s, it wasn't just technology that was advancing. The rise of the counterculture movement yielded protest against the U.S. war in Vietnam and reflected political and social changes that didn't always have clear-cut heroes and villains. And so it was about this time the traditional Western began to ride off into the sunset. 1968 was the last year that television delivered a new traditional Western on TV. Television Westerns were really put to rest due to declining interest in the genre, combined with increased pressure from parental advocacy groups who felt that Westerns were too violent for TV. The two last traditional Westerns on the air were Death Valley Days and Gunsmoke, both of which ceased to air in 1975. Now, although traditional westerns slowly disappeared from the TV landscape, the genre wasn't completely erased from network television. Before westerns left television en masse, 
Something began to happen. Modernized westerns began to air that incorporated genre elements from outside the traditional characteristics found in TV westerns. These new television programs featured elements of westerns, but they mashed them up together with other genres of entertainment. Heck, Ramsey? Well, that mashed up the traditional whodunit genre with a little western flair. Little House on the Prairie was a family drama set on the frontier of the emerging west. Kung Fu was essentially a reimagination of the gun for hire out west with a showland monk in the lead. Need a little family adventure mixed up with your western wear? Well, how about the life and times of Grizzly Adams, where a mountain man worked with mountain wildlife to help other mountain people in need? And then there was one western that was also a spy thriller that was filled with espionage, a show full of high-tech modern-day gadgets, but with a dash of science fiction set against a world of gunslingers and saloons in the Old West. Now, if that really sounds intriguing, have I got a show for you. The Wild Wild West debuted in September of 1965, and it ran for four seasons, ending in the April of 1969. The show's creator, Michael Garrison, was one of two Hollywood producers that purchased the film rights to Ian Fleming's first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, back in 1959. Now, about 10 years later, as Westerns were all the rage, Garrison went to the top brass at CBS and he pitched a show that was James Bond on horseback. The show's hero... James West, a secret agent working for President Ulysses S. Grant shortly after the end of the Civil War. West was played by Robert Conrad, who longtime listeners of this podcast remember as the bumbling police officer that pursued Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad in the tragically unfestive Jingle All the Way, Season 4, Episode 3 if you missed it. And James West, he wasn't alone in his adventures. He was joined by his partner, Artemis Gordon, who was played by Ross Martin. Martin had a lengthy career as a radio performer prior to his transition into television. The character of Artemis Gordon was a master of disguise and an inventor of endless gadgets to help James West solve crimes week after week with humor and adventure and countless efforts to foil the dubious plans of megalomaniacal villains, including Dr. Miguelito Loveless, who was played by the diminutive Michael Dunn, who was a dwarf. Now, casting a dwarf as your main villain in a sci-fi and western wasn't the most eccentric thing that the Wild Wild West did when it came to the show's themes, actors, and storylines. In one episode featuring the aforementioned evil Dr. Miguelito Loveless, the plot involves Dr. Loveless placing people in and out of paintings, kind of like this 19th century phantom zone. There were episodes about flying saucers landing with green-skinned blonde alien women who need gold to fuel their spaceships. Speaking of ships, one episode featured naval ships attacked by a swimming, fire-breathing dragons. Another episode had James West and Artemis investigating mysterious tidal waves that were being caused by a mad scientist who intends to destroy coastal towns that are polluting the seas. Another episode had them doing battle with the Kraken. In one episode, Jim West unknowingly trains three sons of the Maharaja of Rampur to do battle in combat as part of a nefarious scheme to steal the lands of the Pawnee Indians. Now, a Western about stealing land from Native Americans surely isn't the thing of fiction, let alone science fiction. But in this particular episode, the Maharaja was played by Boris Karloff. And the Wild Wild West was full of cameos by some of the most well-known actors of the last 50 years. Ed Asner, Harry Dean Stanton, Insult 
comic Don Rickles, Leslie Nielsen of Naked Gun fame, Academy Award winning actors Martin Landau and Robert Duvall both appeared on the show. The Wild Wild West is also responsible for the television debut of Richard Pryor in an episode where Pryor plays a creepy ventriloquist, that's redundant, with one of the most horrifying ventriloquist dummies to ever haunt the nightmares of children who actually saw this episode. The Wild Wild West had the fingerprints of talented people all over it. Heck, each week, the show opened with an animated title sequence that was directed by famed Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies animator Fritz Freeling. The show's writers were frequently inspired by the works of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Edgar Allan Poe, swirling together a unique blend of science fiction and Western motifs. This blending of genres is actually credited as the inspiration to modern-day steampunk. As for the show, Robert Conrad claimed that he did all of his own stunts, but that was kind of bullshit. If you look close, you can see known stuntmen of the day in some of the scenes, and supposedly these stuntmen were told not to be caught on the set in Robert Conrad's wardrobe as to not give away the secret that there were stuntmen doing stunts on this western show. Now that's not to say that Conrad didn't do any of his stunts. He did quite a few of his stunts. The fighting and the leaping, a bunch of that was him. And at the end of filming an episode of season three of the Wild Wild West, Conrad leapt in the air from a balcony to grab a chandelier. He missed the chandelier, and instead he caught the floor with his head, leaving him with a skull fracture and a concussion. Now reportedly, he almost died, but he didn't. Ross Martin, who played Artemis Gordon, he almost died during production as well. But not because a floor attacked him in the head, but because he had a heart attack. This caused Ross Martin to miss nine episodes of the show, and he was briefly replaced by familiar actors of the day, including William Shallert, who was Patty Duke's dad over on The Patty Duke Show, and Alan Hale Jr., who was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. In addition to these near-death experiences of the show's two lead actors, the show itself was regularly in a state of near-death. Starting from the very beginning, when the show went through numerous changes in production and creative control, the studio brass wasn't all that excited about westerns because audiences weren't all that excited about westerns. And on top of that, the powers that be inside the CBS network kept changing, just as the world outside Hollywood was changing as well. Shortly after The Wild Wild West was originally slated to debut on CBS, a major management change happened at the network. James T. Aubrey, who had been president of CBS since 1959, we got fired. And then the new regime came in and they reshuffled the whole schedule and The Wild Wild West was originally canceled, but then they brought it back. And this really left it on shaky ground as it continued production over the next few seasons. In 1968, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy prompted President Lyndon Johnson to create a national commission on the causes and prevention of violence. One of the things that they wanted to figure out was, does TV cause people to be more violent? And that included scripted television shows as well as news coverage of the Vietnam War. And during this time, a television reporter named Cynthia Lowry wrote an article that specifically called out the Wild Wild West as, quote, one of the action series being watched by network censors for scenes of excessive violence, even if the violence is all in fun. The CBS brass came to the show's creators and they said, hey, look, you got to tamp down the violent mayhem. But just like creative types are wont to do, they kind of ignored this request. And in an episode of the Wild Wild West titled 
The Night of the Egyptian Queen, which aired in November of 1968, the show delivered one of its most notorious saloon brawls. After this, the show creators then received a more direct letter from the CBS brass that was attached to a script for a future episode that read, quote, The producer respectfully asks that no violent acts be shot which are not depicted in the script or discussed beforehand. Most particularly, stay away from gratuitous ad-libs such as slaps, pointing of firearms, or other weapons at characters, especially in close quarters, kicks, and in the use of furniture and other objects in fight scenes, end quote. This was more than a, hey, tamp down the violent mayhem request. This was a knock this shit off kind of a letter. And so the show's action and adventure was all watered down, and all the acts of violence in the last episodes of the season, well, they were all removed. Heck, and even the hero James West, he didn't really carry a gun. Sure, he'd punch a guy here and there, but it just wasn't the same. In December of 1968, executives from ABC, NBC, and CBS, they all appeared before the President's Commission. Ooh, that's not good. The most caustic remarks from the commission came from Representative Hale Boggs, a Democrat from Louisiana. Now keep in mind, this was back when most Southern Democrats were openly racist assholes. Representative Boggs called out violence in Saturday morning cartoon shows, what a dick, and specifically referred to the sadism in CBS's primetime programming, especially citing the Wild Wild West as one example. A year later, the National Association for Better Broadcasting, in a report eventually issued in November of 1969, rated the Wild Wild West as one of the most violent series on television. Ooh, geez, that is not good either. And you know what? This assessment might have just been made based on the show's animated opening credits, which involves a cartoon cowboy aggressively grabbing a saloon girl, forcibly kissing her on the mouth, and then punching the woman in the face before she stabs him in the back with a knife, knocking her unconscious. Heck, if they watched the whole show, they might have had some harsher condemnation. Where were we? Oh yeah, people freaking out about violence on TV. In a survey of incidents related to violence on television conducted by the Christian Science Monitor, well, this is certainly not going to be good, in early 1969, the Wild Wild West was determined to be the second most violent show on American television right after the British import The Avengers. See what we did there, Laura listeners? All of this hubbub over television violence resulted in CBS canceling the Wild Wild West in February of 1969. Moral watchdog groups kept after the Wild Wild West even after it was canceled. A year later, a group called the Foundation to Improve Television, they sued to prevent the airing of reruns before 10 p.m. in Washington, D.C. because the show violated the constitutional rights of child viewers as it exposed them to violence. Now, that lawsuit was dismissed because it's insane, but the National Association for Better Broadcasting actually pressured Los Angeles TV station KTTV into posting a parental guidance warning before 81 live-action series that the group considered to be violent. And guess what show was on that list? Despite all of these no-fun assholes coming after violent programs on television, the Wild Wild West remained somewhat popular before it left the airwaves, with all that awesome violence that it exposed impressionable young minds to. 
The show remained popular in syndication and even led to a reunion movie, The Wild Wild West Revisited, with Robert Conrad and Ross Martin returning to their iconic roles as James West and Artemis Gordon, respectively. At the time of filming the reunion movie, Michael Dunn, the diminutive, iconic villain, Dr. Miguelito Loveless, well, he died. So to fill his tiny shoes, the movie's creators cast Paul Williams to play Miguelito Loveless Jr. That's right, Paul Williams, little Enos Burdett from Smokey and the Bandit. You know, the guy who wrote Kermit the Frog's most famous song, Rainbow Connection? Yeah, that Paul Williams. The reunion movie played up more of the humor and less of the violence that the show was known for because, you know, all of that knuckle rapping from those racist Southern Democrats in the 60s. And the reunion movie was a hit when it aired on May 9th, 1979. So much so that a second movie was made titled more Wild Wild West. And this film featured Jonathan Winters as the villain Albert Paradine II, who develops a formula for invisibility. How awesome does that sound? And this movie did well in the ratings too, but it marked the end of the trail for the series, as Ross Martin suffered another heart attack and he died a year later. The show, however, remained popular and continued to run in syndication through the 1980s. And in 1994, Turner Network Television, they began to air the show and it later found a final resting place on Encore Westerns. And you can see it running over on the MeTV network. But 20 years after the show's last original episode airing, James West and Artemis Gordon teamed up once again for a new adventure, this time in a big screen adaptation of the classic sci-fi western with an all-star cast and a staggeringly large budget to produce one of the biggest summer blockbuster bombs of the 1990s. Even if you'd never heard of the Wild Wild West TV show, the pitch for the movie had mega summer hit all over it. A sci-fi western mashup with comedy and action and adventure with futuristic technology in a rural world run by outlaws starring the most bankable star of the 1990s, Will Smith, under the direction of Barry Sonnefeld, the guy who brought unto the world Men in Black? And Will Smith's Old West partner in fighting crime would be veteran actor Kevin Klein who would play an inventor of crazy gadgets and a master of disguise. Shakespeare's own Kenneth Branagh would play the bad guy. Selma Hayek would play the female lead, fresh off her success to American audiences in Robert Rodriguez's two films, Desperado and From Dust Till Dawn, where she delivered one of the sexiest dances with a snake ever captured on film. It would open over the 4th of July weekend. Will Smith would provide a theme song that would be inescapable on airwaves everywhere. How could this not succeed? Well, there's an old saying, success has many parents, but failure is an orphan. But that's not exactly true when it comes to box office bombs because the actors, directors, and oftentimes the producers, well, they can't deny that this ugly baby belongs to them. When identifying the causes of this notorious summer turd of a movie, one name always comes up regarding the failure of Wild Wild West, and that's John Peters. Hairdresser to the stars from the 1970s, John Peters? Yeah, that John Peters, the one and the same. John Peters had famously styled the hair of Barbara Streisand earlier in her career, and the two had a very close personal and professional relationship, so much so that it landed Peters as the driving force behind Streisand's singing and acting and eventually her directing career. This ultimately led John Peters to land a producing credit on Barbara Streisand's film A Star Is Born, and he's also a producer on that Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga remake from 2018 that Bo never saw. John Peters' relationship with Streisand, it didn't last, and he eventually moved on to other loves in his 
his life, leading to five marriages, once to actress Leslie Ann Warren for eight years. And then there were three more marriages until his most recent marriage, which was to Baywatch star Pamela Anderson back in January of 2020. And that happy union lasted a total of 12 days. Now, what would make the discerning Pamela Anderson wed John Peters? Anderson famously chose to wed both Tommy Lee of Motley Crue fame, who, according to internet videos, has a very large penis, and separately she wed Robert Ritchie of Kid Rock fame, who, according to internet videos, still wants to be a cowboy, baby. Well, John Peters parlayed his early success in Hollywood to create a production company that was responsible for numerous financial and critically acclaimed movies of the 1980s and 1990s. In short, he was rich and powerful, just the type of movie mogul that could get an aging playboy centerfold to say I do for almost two weeks. John Peters' cinematic hits included Flashdance, The Color Purple, Gorillas in the Mist, but his biggest hit came with Batman in 1989, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Batman led Peters and his production partner to receive a multi-million dollar seven-year deal with Warner Brothers. Peters' success enabled him the ability to buy the film rights to the Superman franchise from Warner Brothers and he would be instrumental in the rebooting of Superman for the silver screen. Now, during the early production of the Superman reboots, Peters was looking for a writer to pen the script for Superman to make his triumphant return to theaters across the world. And this was the mid-90s, where Kevin Smith was the darling of indie comedy cinema. Kevin Smith had scored big successes with his debut film Clerks and his sophomore outing Mallrats that included a scene with Marvel Comics' own Stan Lee playing himself. John Peters liked Kevin Smith's work and he offered them the opportunity to pen a Superman script. Kevin Smith, a comic book junkie, he jumped at the opportunity to work on a new Superman movie that would ultimately become known as Superman Lives. And this movie would be directed by Tim Burton, who had also directed Batman. On top of all that, Nicolas Cage was selected to play the Man of Steel. I know, the 90s were a really weird time in Hollywood. Kevin Smith took the job, but John Peters gave Kevin Smith three things that he had to follow when writing the screenplay. One, Superman can never wear his signature suit. Two, Superman cannot fly in the movie. And three, Superman must fight a giant spider in the third act. Kevin Smith took all of this under advisement and he completed the script and then met with John Peters to discuss his draft. It was at this point that John Peters asked Kevin Smith to include a robot sidekick for Brainiac, the villain in the movie. John Peters also wanted a fight scene between Brainiac and two polar bears and a marketable space dog pet, you know, like a Chewbacca. Kevin Smith did as requested. Tim Burton came in and kind of shook things up, which led Kevin Smith to being shown the exit door to the project. And then things just kind of fell apart from there, and thus Superman Lives never really got off the ground. Now, you can learn more about that whole film in a documentary called Look, Up in the Sky, The Amazing Story of Superman, which is all about the history of Superman from comic books to TV and the big screen. But let's get back to Kevin Smith. In the early 2000s, Kevin Smith went on these spoken word Q&A live event tours. One of these sessions was released on DVD titled An Evening with Kevin Smith. And in it, you can hear Kevin Smith recount his experience working with John Peters on the Superman script in very funny details. But what does all of this have to do with Wild Wild West? Well, Kevin Smith discusses his experience seeing Wild Wild West in the theaters, a movie that was produced by John Peters, where... To quote Kevin Smith, I'm like, good lord, this is a piece of shit. But then, all of a sudden, like, a giant fucking spider shows up. (laughs) 
<laughs> John Peters, he finally got that giant spider because it turns out he was a real hands-on producer and a driving creative force behind Wild Wild West. Oh boy. Now, box office bombs can't be 100% blamed on the producers. Not 100%. The director of the film certainly shoulders some of the blame, and for Wild Wild West, those shoulders belong to Barry Sonnefeld. In the 1990s, Barry Sonnefeld was riding high with a string of successful movies, including the adaptation of the cult classic TV show The Addams Family into a feature film, and he also helmed the sequel Addams Family Values. Sonnefeld directed the adaptation of the Elmore Leonard novel Get Shorty, starring a post-pulp fiction John Travolta, and as noted earlier, Sonnefeld directed the incredibly successful outer space extravaganza Men in Black, starring Will Smith. Things were going so incredibly well in his career, little did he know that a disastrous failure lay ahead of a most impressive career. Sonnefeld had started out working as a cinematographer alongside Joel and Ethan Cohen, two filmmakers who may never have a film discussed on this particular podcast. Sonnefeld worked on Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. Sonnefeld worked on Misery, Throw Mama from the Train, Big, When Harry Met Sally. His career cut across film genres from comedy to drama to horror to action to suspense. Sonnefeld honestly was a perfect choice to direct Wild Wild West. So what happened? In an interview with the Huffington Post while Sonnefeld was promoting Men in Black 3, Sonnefeld explained what he had learned from making Wild Wild West, mostly attributed to all of the mistakes that he made. Now, mistake number one was having two funny guys as your lead. Sonnefeld noted that you need a funny man and you need a straight man. Two funny guys, bad idea. Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, that works. Will Smith and Kevin Kline, that don't work. But why? Well, we're going to discuss this in way more detail when Bo gets here. But in my opinion, it's because Kevin Kline is a funnier comedic actor than Will Smith, which meant that Will Smith became the de facto straight man in this movie. Now, mistake number two that Sonnefeld pointed out, you don't shift the tone of your film. Sonnefeld said that when the spider shows up in the movie, it dramatically changes the tone of the film. It was big and mechanical and over the top. The rest of the movie was more grounded, and introducing this element made the movie feel too much of a contrast for Act 1 and 2. It was just too large. It took the audience out of the reality that was established for 80% of the film. Mixing genres is difficult to begin with. Sci-fi and westerns, that's a tough to pull off. Don't just believe me. Go talk to John Favreau about cowboys and aliens. Now, mistake number three that Sonnefeld pointed out was putting Will Smith in drag and making him belly dance. Sonnefeld felt that this was a huge mistake, and he cited John Peters, the producer, as the one who insisted on this being in the movie. Sonnefeld admitted that this is the point in the film where the wheels just totally come off. Sonnefeld said, quote, There's no sense of danger, really. You don't know as an audience member totally, is this a comedy? Should I be worried? Is Will going to get in trouble? Once you lose the audience and change the tone for them, for better or for worse, I mean, there are comedies I've seen where in the third act, the tone becomes very serious, and that's equally as deadly. So what I learned in the movie is, don't do a movie you don't believe in 100%, and make sure the tone is consistent throughout. Now, all this blame can't be placed on the producers and the directors completely because we need to talk about the movie's marquee star, Will Smith, and the challenges that came up with casting a black actor to play a secret agent in the years immediately following the end of the Civil War. Now, why was Will Smith cast in this movie? 
That's easy to answer. He was one of the biggest stars of the 1990s. And for a summer blockbuster, you had to have star power to put asses in the seats. Now, early on, Richard Donner, who directed Superman and the Lethal Weapon movies, he was going to direct an adaptation of The Wild Wild West based on a screenplay by Shane Black. And it was going to star pre-scandal movie star Mel Gibson. Early in his career, Richard Donner had directed three episodes of The Wild Wild West TV show, so he had a personal connection to the source material. But Richard Donner and Mel Gibson went on to do a remake of the TV Western Maverick instead. So next, producers eyed Tom Cruise, and they wanted him to play Jim West. But he passed on that to go do a remake of the TV show Mission Impossible. Remember, this is the 90s. Everybody was remaking shows from the 60s left and right. It was a crazy time in Hollywood. Then film producers landed on Will Smith. In the 1990s, there were very few movie stars as popular as Will Smith, starting with his music career as The Fresh Prince alongside DJ Jazzy Jeff, which led to the NBC sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This parlayed into a movie career with success that is second to none in the 90s. This included the film Bad Boys alongside Martin Lawrence, which was directed by Bo's favorite auteur, Michael Bay. Next came Roland Emmerich's Independence Day and the aforementioned Men in Black. Teaming up Will Smith with Sonnefeld on this new and different project seemed like a sure thing. So much so that Will Smith reportedly passed on the role of Neo in The Matrix to star as Jim West and work alongside Sonnefeld again. Now, casting an African-American actor as a secret agent in the era of post-emancipation is challenging to say the least. The original script didn't even address issues of race because it was most certainly assumed that Jim West would be played by a white actor. The six writers who penned the script for the Wild Wild West, well, they had delivered scripts ranging from Predator to Short Circuit, Tremors, Ghost Dad, that adaptation of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The whole writer's room was a grab bag of questionable quality writing, to say the least. But casting a black man as a secret agent in a post-Civil War era raised immediate questions. Primarily, how do filmmakers handle the issue of race in this film? And according to reports, it was Will Smith who urged Barry Sonnenfeld to make race an issue in the movie. Sonnenfeld agreed to take this angle and said at the time, I had to do it because life in America is so boring, we have to do something to spice it up a bit. But even Sonnenfeld had his limits. In one scene where Will Smith, as Jim West, faces down a lynch mob, the script called for Jim West to have a noose around his neck as he charms his would-be murderers. Seinfeld decided to have Will Smith just stand next to the noose and not actually put it around his neck. Because being in the noose would disrupt the humor that is generated through the juxtaposition of a man being lynched and his smooth-talking charm. Now, when Bo gets here, we're going to discuss this jaw-dropping scene and many others found in this summer tentpole blockbuster of wrong-headedness that turned off critics and audiences in mass. Years later, with a little hindsight, Will Smith looked back on Wild Wild West and admitted that at this time in his career, quote, I had so much success that I started to taste global blood and my focus shifted from my artistry to winning. I wanted to win and be the biggest movie star. And what happened was there was a lag around Wild Wild West time. I found myself promoting something because I wanted to win versus promoting something because I believed in it. But the marketing magic of Will Smith, it kind of worked. 
For a few weekends at least, Wild Wild West came out on June 30th of 1999 and it topped the box office that week beating out the South Park movie that opened over the same time during this 4th of July weekend. And the movie did okay financially based largely in part on the star power of Will Smith and the film's marketing that included a theme song by Will Smith aptly titled Wild Wild West that was the number one song in the United States at the time of the film's release. But the star power and marketing and catchy song of the summer only get you so far. The movie was destroyed by critics, and it was poorly received by audiences as well. Wild Wild West quickly dropped in its box office attendance. The movie cost $170 million to produce, which was more than the $115 million check that George Lucas wrote to make The Phantom Menace. Wild Wild West brought in $113 million domestically and a little over $200 million internationally, but that was nowhere near the expectations put on this film because, well, the movie wasn't good. Urbana, Illinois hometown favorite film critic Roger Ebert said of Wild Wild West, quote, It is a comedy dead zone. You stare in disbelief as scenes flop and die. The movie is all concept and no content. The elaborate special effects are like watching money burn on the screen. You know something has gone wrong when a story about two heroes in the Old West and the last shot is of a mechanical spider riding off in the sunset, end quote. And you know what? Maybe Roger Ebert's onto something. Perhaps the truth as to why this adaptation of a 1960s television sci-fi western failed so spectacularly is that it's all concept and no content. It's money burning on special effects. It's a giant mechanical spider that nobody wanted to see, except for one very successful former hairdresser. Now, some of you may be thinking, come on, is Wild Wild West really that disastrously unwatchable? Will Smith's easy charm completely fails to save this movie? And did you say that a lynching is played for laughs? The answer to all of these questions is yes, yes, and shockingly yes. You know what? Without wasting any more time and without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, gunfighters and spider riders, it's 1999's The Wild Wild West. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined by my gun-toting, bareback-riding, man-about-town, Mr. Bo Ranstall. Bo, how are you doing today? Oh, I am ripping, sir. Is that what they say in the Old West? It is what they say in the Old West. And <laughs> we got to start off... Um, this movie made me more uncomfortable than any movie I've ever watched for this particular show. Yeah. It, it is shockingly inappropriate from fade in to fade out. It is a long way between 1999 and 2020, it turns oh, out. Oh my God. This movie would be unacceptable today. <laughs> if it were released today, there would be further outrage, further protesting in the streets. It would be burned in effigy. At the time of this recording, there is a bit of a, a controversy around the showing of Gone with the Wind over on HBO Max. And I watched this movie mm -hmm. over on HBO Max. And I got to tell you, I will sign any petition to have this movie... <laughs> 
ripped from HBO Max because of its racist content. Yeah. Alongside any other film that people think should not be exposed to the viewing public. Well, HBO says that they are going to return it to the channel with like with a, a short piece in front to explain the context. Gotcha. Of the movie. I think they should have a disclaimer in front of this movie that says, please don't watch this. Turn it off now. It should redirect you to Django Unchained. <laughs> like if you accidentally, because let's face it, Django Unchained is the good version of this movie, or, or at least much more acceptable version of this movie, where you have that kind of black lawman rubbing elbows with racists, except in that movie, he just gets pissed off and straight up murders them. Yeah, but that's what that movie is meant to be. Sure. This was a big screen adaptation of this sci-fi Western mashup. And as I noted in the intro, casting Will Smith, who is an incredibly bankable star, it's the year 1998, 1999, when this was produced and released. It just completely shifts the focus of the film (laughs) from really its core source material to something that is completely different than what it was meant to be. Like, it would be as if you were watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Augustus Gloop rolls in as a Hitler youth wearing a swastika armband and goose-stepping his way down the red carpet in to get some free snacks. Yet there are two ways to play this. If you're going to have a black actor in the lead role in this film, you either ignore it entirely so that the whole movie, everybody just treats him the way that they would a white actor yes that's what you do or if you're going to make it about racism you do Django Unchained it's too heavy a spice for a blockbuster movie the movie then becomes about racism and then you have to figure out how you're going to deal with the fact that you're now making a blockbuster action movie about racism the movie opens (laughs) that night In the swamps of Louisiana, circa 1869, and amidst the crickets and the bullfrogs and night critters, we see this panic-stricken man running with what appears to be a double-decker metal-collar spool-type device fitted around his neck. And at the same time, this man is being chased by what appears to be a flying table saw blade floating in the air at a high rate of speed behind him. And you must assume that this metal collar, which, oh, it looks ridiculous, and this whirling blade of death (laughs) are somehow related to one another. And this is all real advanced technology for the year 1869 for history buffs like me. 69 brought us the invention of dynamite and submarines and the traffic light, but this type of flying metal self-contained decapitator and aider, that's real advanced stuff. You're not going to see that until at least 1889, right? Yeah, it was right at the cusp of the Industrial Revolution (laughs) is when that happened. He's just running along and it's a real like Baron Munchausen kind of jog he's doing through the cornfields. And he's just like, oh, giant spiders have to tell the president then this saw blade just goes and Mm -hmm. knocks his noggin off and then into the his field of view because it's a sonnenfeld film so we're doing all kinds of crazy angles and whatnot and you're kind of seeing the view from his head right and ted levine aka jamie gum aka in this movie general bloodbath mcgrath right leans down and says i thought scientists were supposed to be smart (laughs) And then spits and then credits. I got a feeling that General McGrath, he'd really enjoy Armageddon when it comes out in 130 years. Yeah, right. (laughs) What are all these suits doing here? Let's just send some rock guys. When McGrath pulls this saw blade out of this guy's neck, it's marked with this giant black spider. And I was like, hey, does this belong to Peter Parker? But it doesn't. (laughs) 
Yeah, the, the murderous Civil War Spider-Man. Upon re-watching this movie twice, which I did for this show, and I will never watch it again. <laughs> I know. All of this advanced technology isn't really explained. It just sort of, it's there, and you go with it. And although I know this doesn't happen, I secretly wanted this movie to have aliens in it and have this film turn out to be a prequel to Men in Black. Oh, if only, Chad. Yeah, that would have made it a hundred times better if at the end of this movie will smith like stepped through a time portal was like got what i need and then leaves well not even that like when the film ends that the president instead of creating the secret service he says i'm creating this agency and you could be the men in black and then everybody would be like oh my god these are connected and nobody would have cared but at least it would have made sense as to why the technology was there and we're dealing with outer space and aliens and sci-fi in the old west right but then you couldn't do another song to release with the film you would just do the men in black song again And Will Smith is looking to make some cheddar here, Chad. <laughs> we got to have a wiki, wiki, wild, wild west song at the end of this movie. Or I, I'm only getting paid half what I could be getting paid on this movie if I'm Will Smith. I've just said it would have been fun and would have grounded the movie in a more over the top way because this movie is completely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But in that context, I can believe it because you just explained why all this unbelievable stuff can be believed. <laughs> Right. They had a Roswell recently and like, we got all this technology from this crashed alien, whatever they called it at the time. The opening of this movie, when the guy's being chased to the cornfield, it reminded me a lot of the opening to Men in Black. Like he's noted, you know, Sonnenfeld has all these crazy angles and he does that first person high speed tracking shot in a lot of his films. All those Coen brother movies had it and the Adams Family movies had it, Men in Black, and you see it here. And then the movie opens up with its credits and the credits are a bit of a throwback to the opening credits of the original show with these boxed hard angles with images that are done with duotones that show scenes from the film um, as we see the the names of the people that are going to be starring in the film. Again, you don't need credits for a movie ever. It's still one of my favorite parts of the film. With so much garbage, it's maybe in the top three things I like about it. You know, it feels like end credits as opposed to opening credits. Uh Uh-huh. Because you're like, who are these people? What's going on? What is that thing? I could see that at the end of the film when you're reminiscing about hey remember when we just watched that shitty movie here's some reminders of all the things that were terrible i like this because it gives you advance notice it's like look we're giving you one last chance to get out of here here's here's what you're gonna see in this movie and it looks way cooler here than it's gonna the movie really starts proper when we cut to morgan west virginia and we're at a train station and it's nighttime this evening is a different evening than when the egghead got his melon lopped off because we're soon going to see McGrath in a whorehouse and he can't be in Louisiana and also be in Morgan, West Virginia, unless of course my men in black mashup comes true and there are portals allowing him to zip around the country. So that's not happening. All right. So let me set the stage. It's nighttime and we're at a train station. There's a small building on the left of the tracks. In the middle, there is a giant water tower. And on the right, there's this larger warehouse type building. And we hear a woman off camera say, the legendary Captain James West. And I finally got him all to myself because James West, he's a legend, Bo. Show a little respect. Here we see James West as played by Will Smith. And he is swimming in the water that is within this water tower with this lovely, naked, young black woman. Now, I only mention her race because, as we noted earlier, race is the only thing that this movie is about. And more often than not, it's not in a good way. Right. We see naked Will Smith and his lovely lady friend. And they're in this water, but off to the side, there's this floating crate. It has multiple candles on it. There's a cot, Chad. It's 
like a water tower room. I don't know what this is. There's, dude, there there was a plate with bread and cheese and grapes. There's like a silver pot and cups for drinking. There's a book on this floating table, which I'm guessing is what, poetry? Seven Habits of Highly Effective Marshals. <laughs> I'm just reading up here on how to be better at my job. <laughs> I don't know who brought all of this stuff and drug it up to the top of the water tower. This thing's like a hundred feet in the air. And I was thinking, well, maybe this is like a bathtub or something. And Will Smith and this woman, they start kissing. And then Will Smith, he hears a team of horses pulling up and he peeks out this little hole and he forms us, the audience, General McGrath's boys been waiting for y'all to show up for a week. And then we, the audience, we have no idea who General McGrath is. And we're like, all right, well, let's just see what happens. And then this woman who's with Will Smith, she says, you're not working up here, are you? And Will's like, no, no, no. So these two start kissing again. And then slowly Will Smith moves his head away while his mouth is still like sticking out his tongue and he's making nom, nom, nom motions. Like he's supposedly kissing her, but he's peeking at the bad guys. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. Directing a motion picture that is a comedy must be incredibly difficult. (laughs) Yeah, because yeah. Th- this sure makes it look hard. <laughs> there are certain people who can do it and they know this will be funny. This is when the audience will laugh. This is when we need to pause for a beat. Like on the set, you have to have that instinct of knowing what is funny and what isn't. In my opinion, Barry Sonnefeld is absent this particular piece of his cinematic DNA. He's not a funny director really at all. And anything funny that happens in movies that he's directed is probably more reflective of the script or the performance. It has nothing to do with the way it's shot, the way it's staged, the way it's edited. He has a very unique style and I really enjoy a lot of his work, incredibly so, but he's not a good director of comedies. I think his best movies are those Adam's Family movies and I think that's all performance. I don't think that, I don't think he has comic timing at all. No. Or really, like you said, a recognition that something is inherently funny or unfunny as the case may be. Um, (laughs) But I think the those Adams Family movies handle atmosphere and character so well that the comedy kind of comes out of that. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's get back to the unfunny stuff. So oh, the, the lady in yeah. the water, not the one you're thinking of, this other one, she gives Will Smith the stink eye, which she is 100% validated in doing so. There is no way that climbing up into a water tower to have sex was her idea. This young woman had to be convinced to make her way up to this water tower to hook up with Will Smith. And now he's smacking his lips and sticking out his tongue like a giraffe eating lunch while she just kind of floats around nearby? I don't think so. She puts some, I don't know, her underwear maybe in the hole that he's like spying on the guys out of in this water tower. And he says, you can't go cramming a man's personal things into a hole like that. And she's like, is that so? Mm, And it's the first of a long line of really horny lines in this movie. Because this movie just wants to get it wet, cover to cover. In addition to being about racism, which is an uncomfortable bedfellow in this movie. Let me clarify, Will Smith doesn't want to have sex with anybody. It's all the women just throwing themselves to have sex with him. There's her, there's the Asian lady, our damsel in distress. All of these women are wanting to get in his pants. He just seems to be casually interested if the timing is right. He's Old West James Bond. I wanted to point out that the actress who's naked and swimming out around with Will Smith is 
is Garcelle Bovis, and she would later go on to marry Michael Keaton, aka the Vulture, in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just watched that recently. And there you go. You saw her sticking her panties in a hole and- <laughs> 20 years earlier. <laughs> talking to Will Smith about sticking his man things in her holes or something. It's a, it's nice when you can just chart like, like you have that personal <laughs> bell in the corner of your screen that's like, when are we going to see another cock and or pussy gag? Soon, I hope. They start kissing again. And down below, the drivers of this horse-drawn wagon, they're loading up these wooden crates that have bottles in them. And the sound of the crates kind of spooks the horses. And so they walk forward and the wagon rolls, which causes one of the wheels to bump into the support of this 100-foot-tall water tower, which is made of termite-infested balsa wood. And therefore, the water tower slowly tips over and crashes into the glass roof of the larger warehouse building on the right. And then water just pours out everywhere and a naked Will Smith rides the waves down to the floor of this building where he is met with three men picking up wooden crates. And Will Smith stands up and says, Woo! That was fun! Which one of you boys wants to strip down and go next? Yeah, he complains about his nudity. He's like, hey, could you throw me some clothes? And the mom from Spider-Man Homecoming, as she will forever be known now, tosses him a hat. And so he covers up his dick. Did it make you uncomfortable when he asked the question, which one of you boys wants to strip down and go next? I I think I skated right past that. There, there was so much I, I going on in this scene. I was so fearful for his life. Seeing this naked black man surprising three white guys, all in Confederate soldier uniforms, against a backdrop of extensive structural damage to this warehouse. And he uses the word boy. I, I'm like, and he's like, do you want to strip naked? I'm like, oh my God. Like, I haven't felt this level of anxiety since Burt Reynolds climbed up on top of Lonnie Anderson and Stroker Ace. As the white hillbillies are accosting him, we get the first syllable of the N-word out before he starts throwing punches. Dude, what happens is that Will Smith takes the hat that the woman he was with tossed down to him and covers up his erection. Because clearly he had one if he was up there making out. Mm -hmm. He puts it over his dick. And this Confederate soldier says well well we got us a shy knit mm -hmm. and then will smith punches the soldier in the mouth before he can utter the most offensive word that could have been said at this moment in the movie can, just can we just stop the episode now just because neither you nor i are remotely qualified to speak to the offensive racist characters and language in this film the, i can do the best i can offer is to tell you how i felt and how I reacted watching it and how truly perplexing it is that racism is so front and center in this movie. Yeah. This should, this should be fun, mindless summer popcorn fun. It's, it's not, it's like Mississippi burning. It, what are we doing here? It is conceptually wrongheaded. And that's kind of the reaction I have to, it's just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. This is, they thought this was okay. It, you just have to kind of Archie bunker it to some degree where you're just like, you old racists. None of it's all right. <laughs> no, he beats up the three guys and he's naked. Yeah. And when he comes to the third guy to beat him up, the guy looks down at his dick and then he gives it a, Ooh? and then Will Smith punches that guy out. Right. And then his lady friend throws him the rest of his clothes and you're really thinking, oh, well, this scene is over. He's knocked out these three guys. He'll move on. But put a pin in this scene because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. It's not over yet. 
<laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> uh, but across town, a sexy lady is driving a wagon past Fat Can Candies, a saloon. What terrible branding for an establishment. I don't know. At that time and place of like, what's she like? She's got a fat can. It's better than Scrawny Susie's saloon. I'd rather <laughs> go to Fat Can Candies. <laughs> Inside, we get our first look at Kenneth Branagh as uh, Dr. Arliss Loveless and his escorts in the inside this wagon, who we will learn out are named like Munitia and Miss Lippin Reader and Amazonia and Miss East are the Lovettes, as I came to call them. As I wrote my notes on this, I also followed along with the script because I wanted to see how much of this was ad-libbed dialogue as opposed to actually <laughs> words that were put in the mouths of the actors by the screenwriters and when we meet mrs east in the script it says dr arliss loveless strokes the cheek of the oriental woman and i was like mm. yeah all of this racism it is 100 <laughs> genuine authentic it doesn't start and end with will smith it's just a <laughs> subtle line through the whole film <laughs> Inside Fat Can Candies, we catch up with General Bloodmath McGrath, uh, who was the guy that was, you know, leaning down in the decapitated head at the beginning. He's watching Salma Hayek not dance with the snake. And if you're not going to have her dance with the snake, why have her dance at all? So fuck this movie. <laughs> While, or while he's also making eyes at Kevin Klein, welcome to the show, in drag. He's clearly a man dressed as a woman, right? Yes, there is no getting around it. There's no mistaking it. Dude, was there a moment where you thought, like when you were looking at him thinking, could he pass for a woman? No. I mean, in the well, in the world of this movie, I suppose so. Because the world of this movie doesn't have a lot of rules. Okay. I always thought that Dave Foley could pass as a woman. He was yes. pretty good at that. What about Robin Williams in Doubtfire? Was that believable? No, that was horrifying. What about Tyler Perry as Medea? Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen an actual Medea thing. Shame on you. <laughs> Somebody told me that Tyler Perry's Medea's Boo, the Medea's Halloween, was mm -hmm. actually all right. So yeah. I just never saw it. I watched the sequel. Mm, moving on. Okay. How about Wesley Snipes, John Leguizamo, and Patrick Swayze in Tu Wong Fu? Could they totally pass? Leguizamo in particular, I felt. What about Hoffman and Tootsie? Eh, not really, no. It's the voice, I think. How about Jace Davidson in The Crying Game? Uh, sure. That, confu that confused a number of people. Johnny Depp and Ed Wood? No, 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 no. Martin Lawrence in Big Mama's House? No, although I've never seen Big Mama's House. What? How about Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in Some Like It Hot? You know, I always thought Tony Curtis was surprisingly feminine. How about Nathan Lane in The Birdcage? Yes. Travolta in Hairspray? No. Louis Anderson in Baskets? <laughs> yes. Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari in Bosom Buddies? More Scolari than Hanks. Sean and Marlon Wayans in White Chicks. I've only seen the pictures and absolutely not. Jamie Foxx as Wanda on In Living Color. <laughs> no. I'm... And lastly, Jamie Farr as Klinger on MASH. <laughs> no, but that was the point. <laughs> what about Eddie Murphy as Mama and Grandma Clump in those Nutty Professor films? More so, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of on board <laughs> with that because those are actually like different characters at the same time. and every, Especially the, the old grandma is the, you know, Mike Douglas, the only white man ever made me moist. <laughs> Like, that character it could be an old grandmother, as far as I'm concerned. I thought that was perfect. Let's get back to our shitty movie. Let's, let's talk about the clumps more. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> <laughs> it'll be less racist shockingly it would be less racist it turns out that general bloodbath mcgrath has this w ear horn glued to the side of his head yeah 
it's you know this was just like you know this will be good for an action figure kind of thing and <laughs> while he is making eyes at kevin klein kevin klein has a nibble from another customer mm-hmm. and he's just like you know oh go on go on the dude whispers in kevin klein's ear and then kevin klein says i'm sorry that won't be possible i have tonsillitis and i'm like tonsillitis that's not gonna stop a saloon whore you lean into it you charge more you call it the deep canyon bump and rub tack 40 percent on the flat rate i would also mark that as about the third cock joke in about i don't know eight minutes of this movie <laughs> we cut to the upstairs of this brothel saloon and we hear someone screaming help me help me please and it's coming from inside this giant trunk and it's being carried by two of general mcgrath's confederate lackeys and i always tend to pay more attention when people are screaming for help when they use please in their cries <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Kevin Klein also knocks out his potential client with some gadget. It's the first of many gadgets we see in the movie with uh, that flower or whatever on his dress. I thought it was like a boxing glove that he had hidden inside of his big fake boobs. Or something. It's kind of unclear. One of the problems I have with this movie is that... It constantly rips off the Goonies and all of Data's inventions. Well, I just feel like it's never fleshed out. Like, when they start saying that Kevin Klein's inventions don't work, I was like, when have they not worked? McGrath goes over to this table and he sits down beside this guy named Hudson, who's this Native American gentleman. And that's a good name for a Native American. Hudson. Or maybe like Preston or Ashton. Or like Brett, yeah, or Brent. Those those are all good. Uh, those are good names. My name is Tucker Two Bears. <laughs> McGrath says to Hudson, "They got your merchandise. Where are my guns and my ammo?" And then Hudson says, it's being delivered, but let's go check out that person screaming for help that you're abducting for me. And then McGrath says, and I quote here, <clears throat> direct me to the pooch, sir. I want something young and creamy, a gamer that takes the crop and the spur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he going to take a shit? Is he soliciting sex from a prostitute? I I think it's more implying that he's going to whip the shit out of one of these girls. And in in true Batman v Superman fashion, General Bloodbath McGrath hears that Kevin Klein's assumed name in the saloon is Dora. And he's like, what? My mother's name was Dora. I always wanted to fuck her. So he goes with Kevin Klein because of the mother connection, one presumes. I guess. And then the the dude that Kevin Klein knocked out downstairs comes back and is like, "Hey, I I thought I was gonna be able to buy you as a human being." And uh, General Bloodbath McGrath just shoots him. Oh, he's Bloodbath McGrath. You don't get a name like that, and it's not ironic, right? So, and then he grabs Kevin Klein and he's like, "Hop up on this table, little lady. Let's have a song." While Kevin Klein starts to sing, he drains some yellow syrup out of his ear. Yeah, McGrath tips his little ear horn over, and this goop pours out. And he's all sweaty and pasty in this. He looks like he's four weeks past due for a good heart attack and a stroke combo. It looks like he's just pouring honey out of this thing. It's real soupy and gross. This movie does something that is so frustrating in a film where as soon as things start to get interesting, it just like, hey, let's go over here and do this other thing. Yeah. Because as soon as he says, I want to hear a song, little lady, Kevin Klein looks a little worried like, oh my gosh, I don't know the song. I'm, I'm, I'm in a bit of a pickle here. We cut back to Will Smith, who we last saw naked beating up those three racist and penis-curious Confederate soldiers. But now he's fully dressed, and he's still punching all of these Confederate soldiers all bare 
typical Donnybrook style. Yeah. And then the naked lady, you're like, is she dead? Where is she? She just falls vertically from the sky. Will Smith catches her, but now she's wearing like a burlap sack or a horse blanket or something. <laughs> and then the water tower reservoir falls also from the sky and it lands perfectly upside down, I think, on the Confederate soldiers like he just wrapped up a game of mousetrap. It's maddening how disjointed all of this is. And so he ends up like doing this weird Temple of Doom swing. He just jumps up in the air and zip lines on this pulley system and then flies on the wagon as it starts to run away. Yeah. None of the physics of this make any sense whatsoever. He gets on this wagon that turns out to have nitro and the whole joke of the scene is him going, this is not how you store nitro. And everybody laughs. And then he stops this wagon before it falls off a, uh, like the crest of this hill that is overlooking fat can candies. Objection, Your Honor. Go on. He does not stop this wagon. He jumps on the back of the wagon. He then makes his way to the front where the horses are, which first off, why don't you just try grabbing the reins and slowing them down? If they're not there, what is he going to do by climbing all the way out onto the front of the lead two horses? It would be like if I was in a taxi cab and the driver passes out. So I just climb out the window, go to the front of the car as it's rolling down the street, pop the hood and try to take the battery out. (laughs) Right. But he doesn't do anything. The horses, when they get to the edge of this, it's not even a cliff. It's like a mild drop off. They just stop. Yeah. Because they're like, well, shit, into the road. And then he flies boots over hooves and he's hanging off of a piece of leather and he doesn't even pull himself up. The, the horses are like, hey, boys, back up. We got to pull this shit head up. <laughs> and they back up and he gets to the top and he's like, oh, look at it. You know, fat ass candies, fat ass house of whores and booze. <laughs> He peeks in the window. <laughs> I've been there. And he sees McGrath and they're drinking. He's like, oh, I got him. That's definitely him. I can recognize his ear horn and his gross, pasty, syphilitic complexion. <laughs> and so inside, Klein is singing a song called Sons of the South. Mm-hmm. And never heard of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, have, I think he just made it up. I, right. It's it's just a song meant to rile up the bass. Everybody loves this song, dude. Up in the, the upper levels of the whorehouse, all the whores come out with their johns, and they're all just like singing along, and they're hoisting up their drinks. It's what I imagine. It's like being in a bass pro shop when Sweet Home Alabama comes on the music system. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I thought Gaston <laughs> had showed up for a second, the way the place was celebrating. <laughs> Ted Levine is like, he can't take it no more. He's been watching Kevin Klein prance around and he's all horned up. So he's just like, come on, little lady, we're going upstairs. They go to this room. On the way to the room, they open door number one and you hear a sheep go, bah. So, so someone's fucking a sheep. Yeah, and, and, and my dinger just, bing. Another cock and or pussy reference. Let's just. Then they go to door number two. They open it up and we see a person struggling inside of a sack. And Brett or Mitch or whatever the the guy we met earlier, Native American guy, he's there. And you're like, oh, well, they're, you know, clearly abducting, I'm going to guess, a woman. And they're going to murder her and chop up her body or whatever they're going to do. So then they go to door number three, which is empty. Mm -hmm. And that's where McGrath and Kevin Klein, still in drag, are going to go in and have some dirty deeds done dirt cheek right except kevin klein has this device on his belt that's some sort of hypno machine data had one of those in the goonies but his when he popped it open it shot out a little uh, suction cup dart <laughs> right and this one instead makes general bloodbath mcgrath bark like a dog he's like woof uberman <laughs> then <laughs> Nice. Uh, th- all of a sudden, Kevin Klein's hypno thing stops working. 
we now have the conflagration of our two heroes as Will Smith has scaled the building and busts into the room while Bloodbath McGrath is kind of coming to. And he kicks Ted Levine and he's like, hey, get down and he throws some money at Kevin Klein. You know, you skipped over a little bit of racism. And I'm just going to, I'm going to go back and pick it up real quick. You're going to miss some in this movie. It's all over. When Will Smith, Errol flends his way into the room via the window, and then he punches McGrath. Will Smith says to Kevin Klein, you look like you could use some help, ma'am. And then Kevin Klein says, looks can be deceiving, dark stranger. Just could you do me a favor? Could you hand me a pen? Just scratch through the word dark in the script. It is not needed here. Right. Especially by a character that is going to be our hero's partner in do-gooding. And you kind of wonder what the conversation was, if the conversation was ever had about this movie of like, what do our heroes think about our main character? Like the only person that doesn't seem to ever make note of race is the president. No, he does. Because he talks about why his cabinet made him hire all those racist assholes. Oh, right. Work at the White House. Everybody's talking about race Ugh, god this movie just doesn't need it. It, it it needs none of this but while they're arguing over like who's going to interrogate him and and kevin klein is like oh no he's my prisoner uh mcgrath wakes up and then just goes after will smith he recognizes right he says west and then they wrestle and crash through some poorly constructed walls into another room where a whore and a guy are having sex i was so happy that the sheep wasn't there <laughs> right and for some reason another prostitute in another room pulls a gun on will smith and he's just like that'd be an awful career decision darling and then leaves and i was like wait was she on the side of mcgrath and his boys i think she was just right and she saw a black man but you're probably right and so he goes out the door and there's just a bar brawl happening at this point i'm still hung up on people fucking sheep <laughs> Yeah, I, man, I was watching an episode of The Grand Tour, you know, with those guys from Top Gear. Uh-huh. And they're in Colombia in this one episode, and they meet these farmers, and one of the farmers is off in the distance having sex with a donkey. And they show it. It is shocking. That is shocking. Normally, you have to pay good money in Tijuana for that. You remember when I sent you a birthday card where I photoshopped my one-year-old son holding like a fistful of cash in this smoke-filled, <laughs> barely recognizable Tijuana donkey show? <laughs> yes, I do. I I <laughs> still have that you keep the things that are meaningful to <laughs> oh goodness he's 13 now and he's been to a donkey show many times sure i mean you're a good father that way you expose him to a lot of different cultures <laughs> so that he's not myopic in his view of the world <laughs> While Will Smith is beating up racists in this bar. I, I really want to focus on this scene. Okay. Will Smith, he's not wearing a shirt. He's got a black jacket, pants, and the black hat. He comes out of this whorehouse, and he's just like judo chopping and high yaying all of these white people in this whorehouse. And both these white people run for their lives. It's Dude, it's just one man who is a black man hitting white people, like one at a time. These people are freaking out like a squirrel made its way down the chimney into the house. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's a bat upstairs. What somebody, somebody get a towel and a tennis racket. I've got a pillowcase. That's never going to work. God damn it, Barbara. <laughs> it's you and the pillowcases. It's never a good idea. The editing of this movie is really bad as well. Because we cut over to Kevin Klein, who's upstairs, and the Native American guy, Hudson, or Kitten, or Brantley, or whatever his name is, he's escaping with the sack full of mystery person. We hear him say, get Escobar out of here. And then Kevin Klein says, freeze. And he, I think he's got a gun or something. And he wants to get the sack full of scientists for himself. And then Will Smith just suddenly shows up and pulls a gun on Kevin Klein for no reason whatsoever. Right. Because he's still dressed like a 
redheaded prostitute. And then amidst all of this chaos, Will Smith pulling the gun on this redheaded whore, it seems like a side mission you only take up if you want to complete 100% of the video game. Like, it, it, he would never do this. Yeah, as far as he knows, this is, like, why doesn't he just throw a one-line at her a la... Will Smith. You know, that'd be the worst career decision he ever made, darling. I, I said it upstairs, but it still it fits here. It's here that Will Smith says, out of my way, lady, U.S. Army. And then Kevin Klein he says, I'm not a lady, I'm a U.S. Marshal. And then he pulls off his wig. And then we hear Hudson, the Native American guy, says, get the scientist out of here. So we're like, hey, that sack is full of scientists, Bo. So we got a clue. And then Kevin Klein, he's like, hey, I'm a man, baby. And outside Chad, Kenneth Branagh as Dr. Arliss Loveless is in his wagon and his German lady, Mrs. Lippenreader, mm-hmm. turns out she's called that because she reads lips. And she is telling Arliss Loveless, hey, they're saying one's a U.S. Marshal, one is a sheriff or whatever the fuck he is. Then they get the scientists what they stole loaded up. Mm-hmm. Then Kenneth Branagh uh, as Dr. Dr. Arliss Loveless is like, well, I guess it's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight or some other bullshit that he just chews his way through every scene he's in. He has an extendo cane yeah. that he uses to pull the pin on this wagon that has all the nitro in it. Uh-huh. And it rolls back into the saloon and the saloon explodes. And that's the end of the scene. There's a couple of important details you've overlooked. Yes, please. One is that when he pulls the pin and the nitrous rolls down the hill into the saloon, the wagon wagon that was full of nitrous is behind all of the horses Mm -hmm. and it's now been moved up to the edge of this incline that's right i don't know how or when that happened movie magic okay the other scene that you missed is (laughs) that as soon as he pulls the pin and it is rolling down the hill we cut to inside fat sassy asses house of cornholes and loose souls and Our two heroes look up at each other and they give it a, now what? Yeah. Now what, what? Do you hear the clanking of bottles from outside of this building? When the explosion happens, because they really made a big deal that this nitroglycerin is going to blow the shit out of everything. There is an explosion, but it's really not as big as you think it's going to be. It looks like somebody just chunked a couple of Molotov cocktails through the front window. And then you're like, oh, well, okay. How did our heroes escape? Are our heroes dead? And the movie just says, you know what? Fuck it. Fade out. Right. Let's go to Washington, D.C., which is now under construction, as we see. And Will Smith rolls up to the White House and hitches his horse in front. And there are, like, sheep all over the lawn and whatnot. Somebody's going to fuck that sheep. <laughs> Will Smith goes to the White House and a guard stops him. And because we haven't had any racism in a second... Dude, there was racism when he walked into the White House. There's a bunch of servants there, and all of the people that are not white, they're on their hands and knees scrubbing the floors. Mm-hmm. Some guard on the way stops him and says something about 40 acres and a mule, and I was like, I don't even care what the rest of that question is. What the fuck? And he tries to take Will Smith's gun. Will Smith is too cool for that, though, where he like pulls the gun. He's like, oh, you want this gun? Oh, what about this gun? Here's one I had hidden. And what about this one over here? That man would have shot him in the head. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's so insane. You know, if you want to watch a Western that really deals with racism, with satire, watch Blazing Saddles. Yeah. And, you know, certainly there are things in that movie that may not hold up to contemporary standards. But hell, that movie was made in the early 70s. And it's still got a little something to say years after it was originally said. And it does a nice job of actually making the the heroic characters at the heart of it heroic. And this movie doesn't ever quite do that. At all, no. Yeah, so finally, President Grant, at this point, Mm -hmm. is like, hey, uh, quit bothering Will Smith and let him in here. I got got things to say. Hey, a bunch of racists. 
assholes. I'd kill y'all if I could. President Grant, he explains away that racism. This is where he says, the cabinet made me hire those damn racist detectives. I'm like, your cabinet? You're the president. Do whatever you want. Fire your cabinet members for no good reason. Take hydrochloroquine because what do you got to lose? Grab women by the pussy. Have sex with a porn star while your wife is at home with your four-month-old child. You're the president, for God's sake. Act like it. Well, I would get rid of the cabinet, but they're all out in the lawn chewing the grass. (laughs) I chase them off and they come back every day. You saying the sheep for the cabinet, Mr. President? Yes, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) They told me to hire those guards. They also told me not to bathe anymore. President Grant says, I understand you let General McGrath get away. And Will Smith says, well, not quite, sir. Some half sissy let him get away. And I was like, you know what? I'm really surprised that the script had this character be that restrained by using the word half and the word sissy. Because I will bet $100 that an early draft used language that would most certainly not have aged well over the past two decades. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's still not great, but I think the word sissy got subbed in for a much harsher one yeah they went down the line like how about this nope pansy no sissy no um (laughs) so they're chit-chatting will smith and president grant and he says i would have had mcgrath but then this agent uh got in my way and president grant is like who artemis gordon why here he's quite Quite a capable agent. He's a genius. He's cunning. He's a rapacious intellect. Master of disguise. And at this point, you realize that the president is Artemis Gordon, a.k.a. Kevin Klein, in disguise as President Grant. Right. And Will Smith pulls a gun on him. Uh-huh. There's a second where Kevin Klein is like, what are you doing, uh, West? Uh, why? Put that gun down. He says, who are you, mister? <laughs> right. And Will Smith shoots the ceiling and is like, "Who? tell me who you are. And he's like, I'm Artemis Gordon. This whole scene reminded me of why I... I love Kevin Klein just because of him shifting from look I'm the president of course I'm the president I'm Artemis Gordon of course look yeah th- th- he has one delivery in this in particular that is just exquisite Kevin Klein delivery but is it at the very end when uh they become the first and second agent no I will tell you when we get to it because it's absolutely the best thing about this movie but uh, Kevin Klein is like well how did you know it was me and Will Smith is like well you have a Harvard ring and everybody knows president grant went to west point he's like oh very good it turns out grant shows up and is like gordon what what the hell are you doing why do you look like me they reveal here what the plot of this movie is president grant tells them that someone has been stealing the greatest scientists and hydraulics and explosives and other technological shit uh who have been missing over the past year and they've both been working on the same case they just didn't know it so grant is now going to partner them together to defend the nation because he has now received a threat that says they want the surrender of the United States of America to this secret organization or secret army. During this whole scene, Kevin Klein is peeling off his fake beard and he punctures the whatever is in his jacket to make it look like he has a large belly. And a question I have for you, Bo, upon initial viewing, were you aware that Kevin Klein was playing both Artemis Gordon and the real president Ulysses S. Grant? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm kind of a dummy, and I'm watching this, the subtlety playing the president, but then playing a guy pretending to be the president. Yeah. It's just slightly different. And then I thought, shit, that's what he did in Dave. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, the voice is just slightly different and he carries himself a little bit. I mean, it's really a good performance. It's a shame it's wasted in this movie, but like <laughs> Kevin Klein gives it his, and Will Smith does too. Like, I don't want it to, I, like, they are both trying to make a blockbuster movie. But then everybody just keeps coming in and using racial slurs. It, we're getting to it very shortly. <laughs> but 
President Grant says, you two idiots need to take this train called the Wanderer and go after whoever is behind this. And Kevin Klein is convinced that General McGrath is not the villain, but somebody working behind him is. And Will Smith is like, well, that's our only clue. We go to New Orleans because we know that's where McGrath is going, and then we can figure out who's behind it. You think this movie would have been better if it had been told from the perspective of Artemis Gordon and not Jim West? No. If it it still contained the basic character motives of this film and dialogue then no 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 like we're getting rid of all the racism you're kind of starting over but if you start with this eccentric inventor government secret agent and then you partner him up with the straight-laced jim west and then they kind of figure each other out as opposed to starting with jim west and then bringing in the wild card i don't know i I think you can make a good wild wild west movie like i think yes i think you can make a good artemis centered uh movie i think you can make a good wild wild west movie it's just that they didn't this time you know and they kind of poisoned the well i don't know that they would ever try it again but no i think you could make a good movie out of that premise you know what i I talked about in the intro everything about this movie should work yeah you're right and it doesn't. Everything about it just fails miserably. It's it's spectacular in its inability to get anything right. To that point, so in, in the very next moment of the film is outside Will Smith unties his horse while Kevin Klein rolls up on his, this is my biaxial, exhaust twin-wheeled, whatever the fuck. Yeah, it's one of those big front-wheel, old-timey bikes. But it's got a motorized back end on it and that kind of thing. And Will Smith takes off on his horse. Kevin Klein says, Avante! and they race off to the train (laughs) Kevin Klein like at one point zooms ahead of him and leaves Will Smith in a cloud of smoke that is bound to shorten his life the premise of this being that there is some competition between them the other thing it establishes is the stuff that Kevin Klein makes works like his disguise worked on Bloodbath McGrath and his bike works in getting him to the train the train faster. He builds a flying machine at the end of the movie. But the point of I'm making here is when he builds that, Will Smith makes a big deal about like it's really gotta work this time. And it's like, when has it not? Why are you giving him shit now? But again, we'll get to all that. So while M. Emmett Walsh, welcome to the fucking movie, with M. Emmett Walsh. What a godsend. Hey, where are you boys going? I'm I'm the engineer on this here train. Hey, we got a a fella riding up on a horse. Will Smith rides up to the train. Kevin Klein kind of funnily sees him through the window and gives him that wave of like, come in and sit down. And... (laughs) And Will Smith. <laughs> and he's crocheting this chainmail bulletproof vest. Maybe they saw Back to the Future 3. The the impermeator, I think is what he calls it. And I don't know. So Will Smith gets on the back of the train, but that has like an, an ejector plate or something that launches him into the air, into this hole in the roof, and into the seat beside Kevin Klein. They start immediately arguing about like Will Smith's like, quit using all your technological hoodads on me. Let's settle this like men. Kevin Klein is like well i would but i'm knitting my impermeable it's almost ready and he says uh i believe that if a situation degrades into violence that i have failed will smith then punches him yeah he sucker punches him right in the mouth yeah and klein kind of mugs for the camera for a second and does these karate poses one of the few times in the movie where i'm like oh that you should not have been allowed to do this this is not funny did you find it to be racially insensitive partially that and also just not funny yeah it's like michael winslow doing his bad dubbing of martial arts films with a and you're just like please stop yeah yeah it's not funny it's not funny and it kind of sucks 
So mm-hmm. knock it off. And Kevin Klein, you should be above this. Go back to doing Mr. Fish Odor voices. He married Phoebe Cates. Uh, he, he sure did. And, and held on to it. When I heard that, it was like, well, you know, if I can't marry Phoebe Cates, Kevin Klein's a good substitute. <laughs> good for her. It's not like she married the, the owner of the Cobra Kai. You hear Phoebe Cates marries Kevin Klein. You're like, very nice. Be happy and well. In contextual terms, Kevin Klein was like the hero of the John Hughes movie that got the beautiful girl that everyone liked because he was true to himself. And you were like, these crazy kids are going to make it work. And they did. And they did. Like, I don't generally give a shit about Hollywood relationships, but that is one of those stories. It's sort of like the Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn thing where I'm like, good for them. Do you think she ever got out of a swimming pool for him and unbuttoned her top? Phoebe, I want you to go to the shallow end. Swim over, come up in the pool. How about you, how about you take off your top when you do it? <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to put on some 38 special. Yes, I'm just going to be sitting here in the lounge chair, probably <laughs> masturbating. Go on. <laughs> swim, Phoebe, swim. <laughs> Let's talk about something racist again. The Wild Wild West. But he's using the, the racist comedy there as a ruse because Kevin Klein kicks a button on the wall, which swings a mallet like an Acme <laughs> Industries mallet and knocks Will Smith onto a pool table, which binds him to the top and then flips him so that he's beneath the train. Face down as the tracks are speeding below inches away from his nose. They don't really clarify here, but Kevin Klein, is this his train? Did he fashion it with all of these gizmos and doodads that do technological tricks? How much time occurred between the president being like, hey, I gave you a train to <laughs> this moment? Because it seems instant. Yeah, I was like, they left and then they got on the train. But this thing, it feels like something out of a Spy Kids movie or Inspector Gadget. There was never a point where he just says, you know, I designed this train, which would have been all I needed. And instead, it's just like, I made a few adjustments. And you're like, when? When? did you have time to do all this like you had to order parts there were gizmos and and whatnots that needed to be purchased and assembled dude you've got to do a few dry runs with like mannequins you can't have a mallet come down and just hit somebody in the head like that right kill them there is an entire horror film based on the idea of using the paint can from home alone to actually hit somebody in the head and it turns out the results are horrifying chad sure and when the thing flips over kevin klein is like you know while you're down there be a pal and check out my multi-train aggressor that I've invented and put on this train whenever I got here. And then Will Smith pulls a lever which flips Kevin Klein in his chair under the train. And he says, maybe we should work together. And then they both flip back up. Here, Emma Walsh enters the scene long enough to be like, hey, you need to work together. I'm going to throw this sauce all over you. I'll kick you off the goddamn train. It's here that Kevin Klein says, hey, look, maybe we could ask Professor Morton yes. um, if he has any clues as to who's behind all this and so he pulls out the decapitated head of the guy we saw running through the cornfield at the start of the film and this scene should be better than it is because they take this projector light and they plug it into the guy's head and it shines through his eyes the premise is that we can see the last image he saw before he died we ultimately see mcgrath is holding the blade in front of this decapitated head but the good professor also saw that there is like a invitation to a costume party in new orleans where mcgrath has it like peeking out of his front coat pocket so they know that they need to go to the big easy and there is a running joke in quotation marks where will smith keeps saying that's a man's 
head. You did that well. That's how he said it over and over and over again. Yeah, thank you. After he said it four times, then I said it four times. <laughs> and it felt like I was part of the movie. Did it get funnier when you said it four times? Because it got less funny after the first time he said it. This is kind of what I wish the movie had more of, is this kind of crazy Old West technology of like, you know, it turns out that the last thing you see is written on your eyes. You know, like that kind of stuff I think is at least inventive and fun. Then we instead go to a scene where Kevin Klein and Will Smith debate how they're going to get into this fancy party. Klein is proposing all kinds of different costumes. He's like, how about, oh, Chad, how about you be my manservant and I'll, I'll be the, the lord of a plantation or something. And Will Smith does this like pick in any voice about being Kevin Klein's boy. It's a lot of yasa yasa kind of thing. And, and just I'm just uncomfortable watching this. I don't want this to be in this movie at all. Why is it here? America came to see this movie to see sci-fi Western mashups. And we I heard there's a giant mechanical spider. I don't need the addressing of slavery and race in America in this film. There are other movies that are perfectly suited for that. I don't see Tara Reid and Ian Zerling tackling the atrocities of the Holocaust in those Sharknado films. Fast and the Furious don't deal with the genocide in Rwanda. Just leave that shit alone, man. It's not the time or the place. Right. It's not your lane. And it covers up a pretty funny line here where Kevin Klein, like after Will Smith balks about wearing costumes in general, Kevin Klein says, look, we've been tasked by the president to stop a device from being created that can destroy this nation it is our duty as men to do this now you dress up like a riverboat captain and i'll be a saloon girl and it's a funny line like it's he has a good delivery and it's just completely erased by the fact that there was this whole front end of the scene that is incredibly uncomfortable during this scene will smith takes one of the fake breasts that kevin klein wears and dumps out the buckwheat orbs that are inside of it and then he fills it up with water and M. emmett walsh walks in to see them exchanging comments about feeling each other's breasts and it's kind of a is this a good 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 gay moment and you, yeah. it's just like this is what we're going so we just we downshift from the fourth gear of racism to third gear of homophobia the whole movie is just rotten with this stuff and will smith rolls out from beneath a wagon at this part they, they get to new orleans get to this party and they get spotted by a guard and he does another like minstrel bit well the guard says to him what are you doing here boy and i'm like jesus christ just stop it but he leans into it of oh you know i was also i was hoping i was hoping i was hoping I'd have to break your nose and he punches him. Yeah, he knocks him out and then Will Smith sneaks in upstairs where he sees Salma Hayek and the Lovettes all decked out in like old-timey saloon lingerie or whatever you call it. I kind of forgot Selma Hayek was in the movie. I was like, well, hey, when did she show up? She is completely unnecessary to this film. Like, you could cut out every scene she's in and it would not matter. No. But she's like, I applied for a standing-up job and you're just telling me to lie down and they're like, yeah, lie down. You're gonna like it. I we got racism, homophobia, misogyny, human trafficking, sexual assault. We haven't even really begun to address how we can make fun of handicapped people. Oh yeah, that's right around the corner. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's coming. Will Smith is like, you know, this doesn't seem like any of my business. I'll just let that situation play out on its own. And he just keeps on trucking through the room out into the upstairs hallway where he runs into Bai Ling, who is Mrs. East in this movie. And they're 
kind of flirting back and forth like, oh, East meet West and this kind of nonsense. Will Smith says, hey, I'm looking for a guy named McGrath. And she's like, oh, I don't know him. But this is a coming out party for Arliss Loveless. Uh-oh, that's probably going to be something dealing with gay people. <laughs> right. And Will Smith is like, I heard he was dead. Missy e says, you can meet me later in the foyer. Yeah, she just throws herself at him like, yeah, come downstairs and I'll fuck you a good one. Sure. And Will Smith looks at her like, yeah, I might come down there and fuck you, but maybe not. I don't know. Then we cut to the stage show of this party. It's a real elaborate. It's like when you go to somebody's party and they've got like a fucking little talent show shit set up for you before you get to eat and ignore all your neighbors who are just full of shit to begin with. And <laughs> and anyway, so it's a big choir singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh-huh, the Lovettes are all there. Yeah. There's a giant framed portrait with a string quartet sitting inside the painting where they're playing. And it looks like a living piece of artwork. Which kind of comes into play later. So yeah. they wheel out this Abe Lincoln parade float that looks like the guys at Delta House put it together. It's got a four foot tall stovepipe hat. The head of it explodes. And red and white streamers spew everywhere, like the brains of the president that died just a few years earlier. Yes. This is just a, a, the barest taste of how terrible this gets in a second, because Arliss Loveless, a.k.a. Kenneth Branagh, chewing every inch of scenery he can find in this movie. Yeah rolls out and it turns out that he is half a body in a chair and he begins with don't y'all just hate that song he's in this mobilized wheelchair yeah and his entire body like head to toe which is more like head to belly button right he has nothing below even his mid torso he's essentially just head arms and chest yeah and he, he gives this speech about how he gave 35 feet of intestines and my ability to reproduce. He says, why, y'all look like y'all have seen a ghost. It's me, dear friends, alive and kicking. Well, alive anyway. <laughs> and you're like, what are we doing here? <laughs> And he says, you know, we may have lost the war, but we haven't lost our sense of humor. Not even the loss of a lung or a spleen or a bladder, my two legs, 25 feet of small intestines, and my ability to reproduce. I gave it all for the South. So we all know you don't have a dick. We can look at your body and tell that. But that's not the last time we're going to talk about it, Chad. That's going to come up later. So after he gives this big speech to his racist cult and some foreign dignitaries that are like, these are representatives of like England and France and Spain, one presumes, who have thrown some money at Arliss Loveless. As we will learn, they are part of this scam. But, but they never explain what happened to him. Why is he half of a physical human being? So the second time I watched this, what I realized is they only mention this quickly in passing when Ted Levine is dying. And he says Loveless was the pilot of that prototype tank, and it sounds like that thing exploded. You are making that up. No, no, no. That happens. You should explain that. Why is... Yes. This movie has so many problems. Right. right. The, so, the least of, like, logic, weirdly, the logic of the film is, like, the third biggest flaw of the movie. Like, racism is the big, bright, neon, flashing number one of it. And it's number two. 
And number two, just like, oh, and by the way, there's, did we mention the racism that permeates every second of this movie? Speaking of, this is the moment where after he gives his big speech, Will Smith approaches him and is like, hey, I'm looking for General McGrath. I heard you may know him. Oh, Mr. West, how nice of you to join us tonight and bring a little color to these monochromatic proceedings. I feel terrible for even saying this, but it's a line in this goddamn movie where Kenneth Branagh is like, Wow, Mr. West, it's been a coon's age since I heard that. And you're like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) This is not. They're back and forth between Loveless making passive aggressive slash aggressive aggressive racist remarks to him are backhanded with Will Smith making comments like, well, I'd see how it'd be difficult for you to keep in touch with half the people you know. Yeah, like I've been looking for McGrath and I'm just stumped. Yeah, Yeah, and a a lady will just cut the legs out from under you. We could just stop the episode right now. This is only going to get worse, Bo. It's a real yikes. And then... Watching the scene of the two of them pitch insults to one another, it reminded me of being in the backseat of a friend's car when the mom and dad got into a fight. You know, and you're just (laughs) like, I just want to get out of here. I want to be anywhere but here right now because... At any moment, this may turn physical. Right. I have no personal stake in this, but this can turn ugly in a way that I'm not going to be able to escape all the fallout. If you want to watch a better version of the conversation that these two have, go look up that Richard Pryor Chevy Chase job interview sketch that Paul Mooney wrote. Yeah. That's really good. That is good. That's a sketch that's more relevant today than when it originally aired. There's a great bit here. It's just a nice little bit of acting from Ted Levine as General Bloodbath McGrath, where after Brenna is like, I'm holding you personally responsible, General. He is scratching his beard. He's just alone in the hallway and he starts scratching his beard. And as he's scratching it, his leg kind of kicks like a dog. That's because he got hypnotized earlier to be like a dog. But I think it's a nice, like it's one of those acting moments of like, ah, that's kind of fun. Like, again, if that's what the movie had been more of, I would have. That is the tone of a Wild Wild West movie and not, you know, here's another racist insult. Hope you like that one. Back at the party, Will Smith, he rolls up to this busty, red-haired woman who is holding up a masquerade mask, you know, the kind that's on a stick. And he assumes that this is Kevin Klein. And so Will Smith comes over and this woman is talking to this real-life Yukon Cornelius. And Will Smith leans into, like, the Canadian trap and he says you're in for a surprise when you get this one in the saddle immediately you're like oh this redheaded woman is a real woman and this canadian trapper is kevin klein in a costume klein's like oh he think you're me (laughs) will smith is sneaking upstairs to an office where he's eavesdropping on arliss loveless and bloodbath mcgrath and loveless is telling mcgrath your men will have the weapons that they desire here's the meeting place oh let me just draw you a little map i'm gonna draw this (laughs) the lake outside over here and you just want to bring all your men over here and have them stand in a circle make sure there's a big tank size spot in the middle that's cleared out and uh, just tell them to wait there and they're gonna be big surprises it's not gonna be a tank it, uh, we're gonna make a big bonfire miss lip and rita ordered some marshmallows y'all are gonna love it we're gonna be burning all sorts of things wood books crosses it's gonna be delightful <laughs> and bloodbath of mcgrath's response to all this is sir i'd follow you in the jaws of cerberus loveless is like and you very well may meanwhile they leave will smith sneaks into that room after they leave and is doing this bit where he's like using it to trace he does like a like a rubbing yeah like a like a graveyard rubbing or something like that only it's over assumedly where the this map was drawn so he knows where they're going and it's like 
here's the lake. Here's where the uh, the bonfire is going to be. What is this tree with a noose beside it? <laughs> well, never mind. I'm right. sure that's not part of the plan. Why does this say tank spot? Unmarked graves. What is going on here? The whole thing is just called place of massacre? <laughs> I think this guy may be up to no good. About this time, Miss East, remember the Oriental woman, as the script called her? She enters the office, and she just starts taking off her clothes, remember, because she wants to have sex with Will Smith in the foyer later. So let's move that up a half hour on the schedule. And Miss East says, are you a spy or a dangerous cowboy who likes to poke around? And then the camera cuts, and we see her lift herself up onto this desk, and you get a shot of her bare ass. And then Will Smith says, oh, I believe I'm the second. So he's about to get it on with this lady. Mm -hmm. But then she says, east and west will never meet and then her eyes sort of dart off quickly to the side which alerts will smith that he's in trouble and he moves off to the side and behind him is a painting of a man holding a hunting rifle and the man in the painting comes to life and shoots the gun missing will smith and killing mrs east right and then will smith shoots a bunch more whipping around the room and there's a comical bit where we get a wide shot of the room and everybody falls out of paintings that he has shot who were hiding waiting to assess him and then when he walks out of the room there is the final gag of a guy falling from the seat he's not a good comedic director where did this body come from right it should be funnier than it is and because you're right it's like well was there a mural in the ceiling then it would have been fun to have seen that like get a glimpse of that first and then been like oh right there was a mural in that room i counted the shots and then i counted the bodies unless he had a magic bullet back and to the left and went to the ceiling and off of the chandelier when jim west fired that gun it hit the man in the painting of dogs hunting ricocheted off his vertebra into the man in the boat in the middle of the lake, which passed through his wrist, through his temple, at which point it bounced again and hit the portrait of the man in the dining room. Now that dog don't hunt. That is one racist bullet. <laughs> yeah. This movie should be more Tim Burton-esque. And I can't believe me of all people are saying that because I don't care for Tim Burton movies. But even looking at some of the weirdness that was in the Avengers movie from our previous episode, it should just be like infused with that kind of strangeness. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It feels like a lot of this is more just window dressing when it's needed as opposed to really being the thickness of the stock of this movie. The actual style of the world. Yeah. like the Because you do have stuff like this projector using a guy's decapitated head and and that's the stuff there needs to be a ton of and instead in the next moment of this film you have will smith dancing with the redhead he thinks is kevin klein when he's kind of revealing like oh yeah bloodbath mcgrath is waiting to meet at this point and his men are going to get all these weapons and then he kind of pats uh her boobs not kind of he takes his hands and he goes like full mcconaughey and plays the top of her cleavage and the lady then drops her mask shot and smacks will smith and he's like oh shit that was a real white lady kevin klein then holds up this rope and says hang him that's his partner yeah he is the one who is instigating the lynching of our black hero Right. And, and Will Smith, by the way, immediately let outside for said lynching in this blockbuster Hollywood movie. As he's like, oh, I see y'all are mad because I drummed on a white lady's boobies, which is a funny turn of phrase. But again, you're mining comedy out of a lynching scene. It is the wrongheadedness of this movie of being so egregiously blind to what the connotation and and 
text of an honest to goodness lynching is shortly after the civil war the horrors of what that is and it's just like yeah yeah but it's funny now right it's like no (laughs) it would be like if kevin bacon's character in mystic river on the side had a fledgling stand-up comedic career that he was trying to get off the ground the whole movie he's just kind of workshopping material (laughs) right and you're just like hey you know we're dealing with children that have been molested and murdered it's like yeah you know that's uh, it's funny you know hey i was gonna talk to you about werewolves and vampires what's the deal with werewolves and vampires okay are they friends are they enemies i don't really know <laughs> no no i i mean it's about this dark thing that lives inside me i got a dark thing that lives inside of me too it's called a shit <laughs> a shit where are you from huh is this your wife uh, what do you do for a living i think i'm just gonna kill myself uh but so Kevin Klein, using the lynching as a distraction, sneaks upstairs and has picked the lock to the fun sex room where Selma Hayek is in a fucking cage. What is going on in this sex dungeon? There's like this four poster bed with no less than 30 chains and handcuffs hanging off of it. Is this Loveless's sex room? Because he already said he didn't have a dick. I'm so confused. I have no idea. It's just an excuse to have Selma Hayek in a room with leather cuffs and cages and whatnot, I presume. She's tiny too. She's like five foot one in real life. <laughs> she is, she's wee. And Kevin Klein is like, oh my goodness, Sama Hayek, hang on, I can get you out. And he's got this little saw device using his spur and a tube that he uses to kind of saw through the lock. And she says her name is Lovely Rita, not a meter maid, which was disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that she's an entertainer. And he's like, ah, I'm Artemis Gordon. I'm here to save you. Hey, haven't I seen you somewhere before? And she's like, <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm new here. And he's like no i i always remember a face rita again matters so little to this movie i god bless poor selma hayek but meanwhile back at the lynching chad <laughs> let's get back to that good time <laughs> yeah this hilarious scene will smith is trying to talk his way out of it where he's like you know we both learned something here tonight and i know how to make this right and he looks at the redhead and he's like will you marry me uh oh okay i guess not so uh would it help if i said i thought you were a man it, during his smooth talking to try to get himself out of this he says first off the drumming on the boobies thing in my native land and then someone off to the side goes Georgia? And he's like, no, Africa. And the movie pauses for laugh, continue the scene. And then Will Smith says, we used to communicate using drums in the African villages. And looking at this lady's huge titties, we could probably communicate all the way to Baton Rouge or or Galveston. You're not winning over the crowd. Like this isn't going to happen. And then he does a little wordplay on the, the etymology of the word rednecks, which doesn't really go over all that well. And again, if you want to see this scene done better, go to Blazing Saddles where Cleavon Little takes himself hostage, playing both the abductor and the abductee and makes the angry mob look look like the racist idiot ding-dongs that they are. Unsurprisingly, none of Will Smith's smooth talking works because someone just screams out like, let's hang him. And then someone says, I say we stop him. Then we tattoo him. Then we hang him. And then we kill him. And then Will Smith says, I say we let him go. (laughs) One step closer, Will Smith gets it. Kevin Klein then rides by in a wagon, and Will Smith tries to use the noose to swing onto the wagon, but it turns out it's stretchy rope, a.k.a. just bungee. And he kind of boings his way through the air and lands on the back of this horse-drawn wagon and Selma Hayek's riding shotgun. This is the stunt that I thought looked especially shitty where when he slingshots himself onto the back seat of this wagon, mm-hmm. it looks especially bad of just like somebody quickly sat down. Oh, this looks like garbage. Kevin Klein says, 
The lynching was part of my plan where you would be the diversion allowing me to search for the missing scientist. And Will Smith and everyone watching this movie collectively says, scientist, what are we doing here? We're an hour into this movie and I still have no idea what is happening. Right. Or quite honestly, what has happened in the film? (laughs) So Rita says she is Rita Escobar. One of the missing scientists is her father and she is on a journey to try to find him. Will Smith says, hey, I'm going to take one of these horses to go to this meeting place that I found on this etching that I made. So he rides off. What he says is, I'll see you gals later. (laughs) Right. Is that going back to the half sissy remark? Uh, One presumes. What a dick. Rita, at this point, as he rides off, is like, oh, he's so impetuous in this lusty way. And this is my actually favorite delivery of anything in the movie where Kevin Klein replies, yes, he's an idiot. (laughs) It is one of the rare laughs of this movie. It is by far my favorite Kevin Klein delivery. Yes, I'm acknowledging. Yes, he's impetuous. He's an idiot. We cut to a lake where this metal ship that looks kind of like a submarine floating up above the water. It's an ironclad, Chad. Is it? One of the Civil War ironclads. Yeah. I don't know anything about history. I was lying earlier when I said I was a history buff. Um, <laughs> a bunch of Confederate soldiers. They're walking around on that uh, spot that Dr. Loveless uh, scribbled out on that piece of paper. And then this tank comes rolling over the hill. And all of these uh, losers of the Civil War, they all start cheering. And then the tank gets in the middle of them. And it spins around and just starts mowing down all of these soldiers, killing them one by one. Right. And then we come back to the boat. And McGrath, he is furious because all of his soldiers and his buddies are dead. And then Dr. Loveless says, oh, I gave half my body to create such a weapon. And this is how you and General Lee repay me when you surrendered at Appomattox. All right. And he's surrounded by all of his love bots and they're helping to calibrate the weapon as it slices down all of these men with bullets 10 at a time. And then Dr. Loveless, he ignores McGrath's pleas to stop the slaughter and says, this exercise serves as a purpose greater than you can even possibly imagine. And behind him is this gallery of foreign officials or dignitaries. And they all look like they're not from the U.S. just based on their their military uniforms and then mcgrath just pulls a gun on dr loveless and says you can go straight to hell and then dr loveless says after you sir where he smacks a button on his wheelchair that fires a gun and kills mcgrath so one of our two main bad guys is now dead in the film that's a real problem here because the lovettes are not enough to be like the number two villain and in a movie like this you got to have a number two when you have two heroes you have to have that they got to have somebody to fight yeah kevin klein at the end of the movie he ends up fighting the lovettes and he can't punch women so we'll deal with that later it's a real bad decision because and the other thing is that bloodbath mcgrath is kind of a good villain he's got the weird creepy look and you know certainly you opened the movie with him murdering somebody with decapitation like he feels like a good boss before the boss in a video game and there's a real force joke here where mcgrath falls to the ground and one of the international dignitaries has this small white dog that he's holding only to deliver the punchline of this joke and the small white dog has these floppy long ears and it's a puppy and the dog jumps down and runs over to McGrath's ear horn and the dog kind of tilts its head to the side like the RCA dog. Yeah, I had something, I guess. It feels like one of those things like, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? No, no, it wouldn't be funny. It would be a thing that would happen, but it wouldn't be funny. Right. Just because something happens doesn't mean it's plot. Um, 
If that dog hopped off the dude's lap, went over to the horn, didn't tilt its head to the side, but instead just squatted up and we got a good 30 seconds of watching this puppy shit, that would have been funny. What if it had licked some of the soup out of McGrath's ear horn and then taken a runny <laughs> shit? It licked it up yeah. and then just started violently vomiting and then eating that vomit and throwing up again. <laughs> That all through the scene was just this endless cycle of this dog either lapping up or producing <laughs> dog vomit. That would have been a better scene than what we have here. Oh. Hey, look at that thing go. It's really... <laughs> Seems like it really loves the taste of its own sick. <laughs> what a nightmare fate, really, if you think about it. Hey, precious... Precious, stop <laughs> stop eating all your own sick, Precious. <laughs> oh, shit. I laughed more in the last 30 seconds than I did in the whole two hours of this film. So, Arliss Loveless is also barking out, Oh, we, we need to really batten down the hatches. Uh, we're not murdering nearly enough. Somebody isn't reloading quickly. We need to do some more drills. Making notes about how this can be a more effective death machine and essentially says like hey we're gonna pitch Blood Math McGrath over the side for the crabs uh, which is what they do. Will Smith rolls up after they take off. It turns out that the, the tank has a little railway plug-in as well. They got the yeah. undercoating so that they can travel on the railroad and they take off and Will Smith arrives at the site of the massacre followed short Shortly by Kevin Klein and Rita, who literally get there like eight seconds after he gets there. Well, you know, you figure that the horses that were pulling them, there were three of them. He's on one. You know, they're probably going at the same rate of speed. I had my patented wagon boosters. And he, Kevin Klein does his Artemis Gordon thing where he wanders around and he's like, the thing came out of the water. It had a 360 degree line of fire. And Will Smith then tells the story of New Liberty, which was this free slave town where everybody was murdered by a thing that was using him for target practice. And Kevin Klein and Selma Hayek look on listening to this story with as much shock as I had on my face when I was watching this movie. No one in theaters expected to hear this tale of of slave slaughter in a film that had a peppy upbeat hip-hop anthem that was still ringing in the ears of people that bought a ticket as your introduction pointed out rightly i think if the movie was chad loveless has invented this tank that he used at the site of this massacre only he's got version 2.0 of it and he is going to use it to take the country hostage and murder people and stuff like that and you forgot all about this stupid spider thing and the movie was we have to track down this new weapon weapon and destroy it i think that's actually a pretty decent wild wild west movie yeah that movie doesn't exist it doesn't exist you got this turd right because this tank that they've all been talking about like hey we've got all these scientists and whatnot to build this tank and the tank as it turns out is nothing it doesn't matter in this movie nope uh which we'll get to in just a second so he tells the you know will smith tells the story of new liberty and then they find that bloodbath mcgrath is still alive and he says, huh, you want to kill the man who is responsible for new liberty? You kill Arliss Loveless. He was the man in the machine that day. 
then Rita is like, oh, I know where Loveless is going. And they're like, what the fuck? How did you know anything? Well, like, I guess you got to contribute something to this movie. She says that the Lovettes mentioned Utah. And so they're like, well, let's go to the direction of Utah then. And McGrath just dies in the water. Yeah, unceremonious. Yeah. So he's out of our movie. They leave Rita at the station. Why do they leave her at the station? She's on the train in 30 seconds. Right. Why go through any of this? Will Smith is like, oh, she's going to be a distraction. We don't need her. She she gave us all the information she has. She would only be in the way and get in danger if she came with us. Kevin Kline's like, I don't know. I kind of like her. It'd be fun to see her naked and me be naked with her. He has this whole speech in this lead up of like, oh my goodness. I mean, did you see her, James? Uh, she had these incredible breasts and the way her that body bent down to this ass that... I don't know. I just wanted to spank it. I don't know if you like that sort of thing, Jim, but I know when I'm with a lady, I like to hear the smack of flesh against flesh. As he's saying this, she just drops in to the chair that Will Smith fell into earlier in the movie. So did she climb on the back of the train and then step on the booby trap door that popped her in the air that went through the door in the ceiling? That's what happened there? I assume so. I mean, that's all we see. And his back is turned. And so Kevin Klein just keeps going where he's like, and I saw her on that bed with cuffs, Jim. I'm not usually into that kind of thing, but it really did something to me. I've been thinking about having her tied up, you know, belly down. That big Latina ass pointed up at me, Jim. <laughs> then he turns around and sees that she's there and is like, by which I mean we need to get to Utah right away, Jim. Uh, I didn't realize that you had shown up. I was wondering, what cup size are you? I have a lovely red bikini that I would like to see you in. We expect to be near some sort of swimming hole later. If you would be so kind as to climb out and unfasten the bikini. I have a I have a hall pass from my wife. Oh, I hope you don't mind if I play some 38 special. <laughs> Immediately, Will Smith is like, we need to kick her right off the train. Rita, a.k.a. Salma Hayek, is trying to petition to stay on the train because she says she knows why all these royal dignitaries were at this party. And they're potentially trying to buy this weapon, I guess, is the motive. Dude, I don't know. And they're just, they're going to Utah. It's it's treading dangerously close to trade disputes level of disinterest a la Phantom Menace for me. Yeah. Where I'm just like, who cares? The only time anything interesting happens is when Will Smith is like, hey, stop the train. We're about to kick this half-naked lady off the, the train. And Emmett Walsh is like, what? Half-naked, you say? I'll be right back. So our heroes get behind Loveless's train and then they go through a tunnel and as the our good guy's train comes out, Loveless's train has disappeared because as it exited, it put down the extendo stilts and raised the train in the air. They went under it. The Loveless train comes back down and now they have the better position to use the tank that is attached to the train to fire ammunition at Will Smith and M. Emmett Walsh and Selma Hayek and Kevin Klein. Will Smith decides he's going to sneak out the bottom using the little flippy pool table and use this. Essentially, it's just a cart that you lay on that extends back behind the train. So he's going to use the stretchy rope from the lynching because, hey, when you've got a good gag like that, why let it go to waste? They should explain, here's what I'm going to do and then have him do it either successfully or when it is unsuccessful, you can sort of see how things went awry. I also want to point out that there was a moment a little early 
earlier in the film where Kevin Klein explains to Will Smith that he has now inserted a toe knife into one of Will Smith's shoes. A la It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes, right. I skipped over that and also the fact that there's a blatant shot of Selma Hayek's ass for no other reason than we want to show that off in this movie. Yes. But yeah, so Will Smith uses the the stretchy rope to climb under their train and slowly work his way back towards the loveless tank train but the extendo rope frays and snaps so he starts rolling too fast towards the bad guy train but he manages to snag his end of the extendo rope on that so it's kind of catapulting him behind the tank and then forward again you made that sound pretty exciting because in the movie it's so incredibly difficult to understand through the editing (laughs) and poor storytelling visually yeah and he backflips onto the tank train while he does that Salma Hayek is like oh he's so courageous and Kevin Klein is like what no it's me that you should be horny for without all of my inventions and my red bikinis you wouldn't have anything to do in this movie by the way put this on slowly slowly so while he's on top while Will Smith is on top of the loveless train he gets kind of garroted from behind by the Native American dude we haven't seen since the beginning of the movie yeah Chet or Brett right where I'm like oh right uh that guy okay yeah is he a villain and then he just gets killed by the knife shoe and it's like oh okay I guess I don't have to worry about him again Will Smith then dumps the body of that guy down the exhaust for the engine while the loveless train shoots a big CGI grappling hook through the good guy train and hooks it so basically will smith has blown up the tank train while the loveless train has sort of captured the good guy train and then selma hyatt grabs a pool ball and presses the number on it because all the pool balls have their own little go-go gadget functionality yes and i think it it releases like some sleeping gas or something so everybody gets knocked out yes kevin klein salma hayek will smith all get knocked out by one of presumably kevin klein's inventions so kevin klein and will smith are out in this cornfield now and they are wearing neck braces like the scientists at the beginning of the movie and they're standing in this small circle of wire around them kevin klein says if you leave the circle you will get your head removed from your body that's a science fact We now see that the two trains are still connected and sitting on them is Dr. Loveless and he's speaking into this steampunk megaphone and he says, oh, maybe I'll get to know Selma Hayek in a biblical sense. I'm sure that no double well-endowed black more like yourself it must seem absolutely impossible that a little freak like me could enjoy the pleasure of a woman. And you're just like, Blackmore? Well-endowed? Just stop this. (laughs) I know that you might think that a man like me could never impress a woman who's been with your thick black cock, but I've got some kind of crazy pump device that I use. You don't think that a genius of my caliber couldn't invent a device that can humiliate and ruin a woman for my own pleasure? He says this. Yeah. He says he's going to invent something that looks like a dick so he can have sex with women. And they do this quick cut to this machine that has like this pump and dildo end on it. But it's like 10 feet long. Right. It's like, it's it's clearly not something, if it's something that's used for sexual pleasure, it, it, it would be used on like, whales like frankenstein's monster i made a big one and eventually i'll shrink it down to a more usable size it's just gross this whole movie is gross dr loveless he leaves on the connected trains with m emmett walsh in the engineer seat his like ps is like if y'all need anything i'll be at spider canyon <laughs> toot toot and then i'm gonna go visit president grant at promptary point i would tell him that y'all are doing fine 
fine, but y'all's gonna be dead. <laughs> Toodaloo. Will Smith, he immediately just steps out of the perimeter and he sees that big dick machine we were talking about. And from this thing, it spews out these um, flying spider discs like we saw earlier. And now our two heroes are gonna be decapitated. So Kevin Klein and Will Smith, they run away from the flying blades. It's not suspenseful. Long story short, they escape and they end up shoulder deep in brown mud and Will Smith sneezes mud into Kevin Klein's face. Oh, I thought it was one of those famous Utah pudding springs. <laughs> Which sounded delicious to me. That is not pudding. That is raw sewage from the six nearby towns. So they get away. Yeah. And then they're walking around the desert with these magnetic collars on their necks. And we get a bunch of magnet humor. It's a lot of stuff about like somehow Will Smith knocks his collar device so that it changes polarity and they keep sticking together. At one point, Will Smith is in a position to give Kevin Klein a blowjob. Right. All right. Again, it's just a lot of dick humor. And I'm like, why is this? If it's not talking about somebody's junk, it's about racism. And I just need this movie to lose both of those things. Kevin Klein looks over and he's like, hey, what is that? That's my toolkit floating in the water. How lucky is this? I can use those tools to get these off of our necks. It's fantastic, really. There's a good line here where Will Smith is like, yeah, I'm surprised that was just in your pocket and not some spring-loaded thing that shot out your ass. And Kevin Klein says... Well, that's the first place Loveless would have looked. That's all right. I'll let that go. But then at night, Will Smith and Kevin Klein are around a campfire playing harmonica. And Will Smith is eating a roasted lizard. He picks up this spider and proves that he is personally an inhuman monster by being kind of <laughs> kind to it. And he's just like, oh, it's just a tarantula, you know, trying to get warm. He says, he lets it go. And then a wasp immediately stings the thing. And he says, yeah, see that wasp uh, is going to poison that thing and paralyze it and lay eggs on it. And when the eggs are hatched, those eggs will eat that spider. This leads to him saying that he knows this because he was raised by Indians after he was sent from his folks to another plantation. Yeah, he ran away because his family was among the people killed at the slave slaughter that was referenced earlier right and so loveless is directly responsible for the death of his parents loveless and so they walk through a green screen desert that looks like shit yep and kevin klein is hanging on to one of the collars and he's like you never know when a magnet could come in handy and then it just grabs him and he's dragged across the scrub and it reveals a private rail line, which they follow to discover their old train and look over the ridge into Spider Canyon, which is this nouveau steampunk city. Yeah, it looks like a building from uh, the Exposition Universo, Paris, like in 1900, where they built that whole city, you know, that it was just all like metal framework. Everything was full of glass. I wonder who built this. Right. Who paid for it? This man has half a body. And apparently was doing things under the radar long enough that he could build a city, a war machine, gather an army, and make deals with, independently, with the heads of a number of foreign governments, and nobody knew what was up. And also, he built a giant, 80-foot-tall, crawling tarantula. Yes. Out of metal. And it can shoot fireballs and take down rock towers that stand well over 1, 200 feet tall. I mentioned this in 
the opening of how Sonnefeld said that when the spider shows up, it really shifts the tone of the movie. And if you've never seen it, it's like, well, yeah, I can see where that happens. You introduce something this big and crazy, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, the whole movie has just been about racism. What if we throw in a giant spider to distract you for a little bit? And also, I I mean, I guess it satisfies this thematic production design of like everything is kind of based around spiders they're in spider canyon there's spiders on the whirly saw things loveless's beard is shaved into a spider yes uh so it's thematically consistent but also it's never explained it's just sort of loveless's bag i guess he just really digs spiders he doesn't ever really talk about it it's not like no the army of the spider is gonna crawl across the face of the united states of america and cocoon up its leaders and feed on their flesh. Oh, did you know that 80% of Americans are terrified of little old spiders? They can crawl everywhere and they get in your mouth when you sleep and lay eggs inside your ears and your nose. Everybody hates a spider. Did y'all ever see Kingdom of the Spiders? That ended with everyone getting cocooned up in a big old inn. William Shatner (laughs) got a face full of spiders from an air vent. I'll never forget that. Spiders are the only thing that's ever made William Shatner go eek on camera. That is a fact of cinema history. I lost my virginity to three different spiders in the same night. (laughs) Will Smith and Kevin Kline, they head back to the train to get guns to go fight a giant metal spider. Kevin Kline here just goes on about how he can improve prove on Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine plans. This movie should be much more fun than it is. Him saying like, I can build a flying machine should be a fun moment in the film. And instead, Will Smith is like, we don't have time for your plans and half-baked inventions. And this is the point where I'm like, what has he ever done that fucked up? Like he's everything he's ever done worked. Yes. So why is it a half-baked invention? If he's like, I can build a thing that will fly and we can, we can save the day. Why would you be like, how can I help? Do you need me to just turn a screwdriver what do you need maybe just moral support maybe i just shut the fuck up and not criticize you for continuing to make things that you got us out of the collars you found the rail line that led us to spider canyon how can i help you Artemis. Right. Which would make Will Smith the sidekick and Kevin Klein the principal hero. Like the only time Will Smith is effective is when there is nothing but the most direct route to solving a problem, just the violent solution, which again <laughs> is fine if that sort of, I guess that is kind of the character, but that seems a little heavy for. <laughs> A blockbuster movie that's just like, yeah, when you need somebody to murder somebody without asking questions. Called Jim West. Yeah, I think it's even at the beginning of the movie when when President Grant is talking to Jim West and says, your method of interrogation is shoot first, shoot a little more, shoot one more time, and then see if you have any questions for anybody. So yeah, I guess that makes him... Hey, speaking of President Grant... Oh, yes, please. You remember earlier when he was talking about the East and West Railroad tracks meeting at Promontory Point in Utah? No. That's where we are now, and President Grant's there with his golden ceremonial railroad spike, and President Grant goes in to hammer the spike into the ground, but the ground keeps shaking, and they put it back, and it shakes, and it falls out, and it turns out that the ground is shaking due to the giant crawling mechanical spider. So every Everybody at the ceremony, they scream and run away because it's a giant mechanical spider. And then Dr. Loveless comes up to President Grant driving the spider. And he's in this monster of a machine and he says, oh, we have not been properly introduced. 
introduced. I'm Dr. Arliss Loveless of the Confederate Army. And to his credit, President Grant has the balls of steel in this movie. And he says, yes, this is quite a mechanical spider you have here. What can I do for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a real like, well, uh, we didn't have parking for a giant spider, but glad you could make it. Kevin Clyde is just fantastic, in, as I said earlier, in both these performances. And then Loveless says, oh, I want you to surrender the whole United States to me and the Loveless Alliance and the Lovettes over here. We're just going to take over the whole United States of America, and then we're going to carve it up, and we're going to give it back to the people that you all stole it from. Except for me, I'm going to keep the Pacific Northwest. And then President Grant says, I didn't realize we were at war. You have me at a disadvantage. I didn't bring my fly swatter. Loveless then points the spider over and blows up a nearby train and president grant doesn't flinch right he's just like mm, well i didn't like that train anyway that's a real bummer uh we were gonna take that home but we'll just take that spider i guess but and then out steps kevin klein now pretending to be president grant yeah you know he's like ah that was my stand-in that i just use every now and again get out get out of here beach dog yeah uh, you can leave now <laughs> Loveless is like, oh, it's two of them. Grab them both and we'll take them. Then it shoots out a big web-shaped net to keep on brand. Right. There's a, a kind of funny line where they're being dragged up into the belly of the spider by the net. The real President Grant says, so is this what you call saving me? <laughs> And Klein says, well, at least we're together, sir. That's, uh, again, there's some <laughs> nice moments here and there. And they're all from Kevin Klein. Sure. I mean, he's he's kind of effortless with stuff like this. Will Smith, he climbs up on top of the spider, but then he ends up just getting shot in the chest and he falls, I don't know, like a good 70, 80 feet to the ground and just thunks. And I'm like, is Will Smith dead now? Yes. Because the spider marches off and he's just laying there motionless. Yeah, it's a good question, and the fact that he's not dead, like, he, he opens up his jacket later, and we see that he had the impermeator, or whatever Kevin Klein called it, uh, his little mesh chainmail uh, yeah. that, that saved his life from the bullet wound, but also, if he fell from that height and was okay from the fall, there are a couple of times later in this movie where one of the Levettes falls, and they're just like, yeah, she's dead, you know, but I clearly survived, nah, 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 she's She's dead. Back at Spider Canyon, Arliss Loveless addresses his army, uh, his captured scientists, and various prisoners. And it's a big speech about like, oh, the Boston Tea Party was the most expensive cup of tea in history, y'all. And just... <laughs> and I don't know what the point of it is other than, you know, he, he kind of reveals like, hey, here's how we're carving up the United States. I'm returning the South to France. The Ponce de Leon's El Dorado goes back to Spain. Britain gets the original 13 colonies back. Mexico can have California, New Mexico, and Arizona. And then I just got a little place in the Pacific Northwest to retire to. I call it New Otis Bird. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Will Smith makes his way back to the train. That's where this character is really going to fit in, in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, wait, hey, I'm your new overlord. I'm the dictator. I've got this giant spider. If you all don't do what I say, I'm going to blow up your town. And I mean it. What do you mean the people of Seattle have formed a anti-spider <laughs> canyon co-op? I will take my giant spider in there and I will get rid of all them pop-up beaneries. Will Smith makes his way back to this tray where he finds the gun belt that Kevin Klein had earlier. It's like a, a little Derringer kind of gun with one bullet. Mm -hmm. And then sees something off screen that's like, oh, oh, does Jim West have a plan? Does anyone care anymore? <laughs> no. And so we come back to Arliss Loveless who's demanding Grant surrender. And Grant uh, says, the U.S. will never capitulate. 
which is a fun thing to say. <laughs> and then Will Smith shows up in a belly dancer costume. What in the f- doing this f- sexy dance? It's the most Bugs Bunny bullshit in a movie that Dude. has a sprinkling of Bugs Bunny bullshit. But this, he might as well have had a fluffy tail and ears. During this belly dance, Will Smith steals a key that's attached to Doctor Loveless's wheelchair, and I'm guessing those are for handcuffs. He gets her like he's kind of like shaking his ass and his his boobs, and then Doctor Loveless decides to nickname this. Uh, <laughs> Belly dancer. Hey, everybody. Did you all see my new belly dancer? Her name's Ebonia. Oh, this movie. Who wrote this? They should be ashamed of themselves. Right. Like, people should have been blackballed for this movie. This scene goes on way too long. They just let the cameras roll, and it finally ends with the nipples of Will Smith's outfit turning into flamethrowers. And then he tosses an eight ball that he got off the pool table, which explodes everything. And he also gives Kevin Klein that small Derringer that he found, the one that was ripped off of the Goonies-inspired belt buckle. And that's going to come in a little bit later. Chad, the sounds that Will Smith makes during the belly dancing... Is some of the most off-putting film I've ever seen in my life. With him bounding around and going like... And you're like, what in the ever-living hell is going on at the production of this film? <laughs> Why, at what point was somebody like, look, this is horribly unfunny. They weren't. <laughs> right. Everybody was just counting the money. You made Men in Black. I mean, this has got to be good too, right? Everybody thought that was going to suck. It really wasn't that good. Shut up. It made a lot of money. It was good. That's the measurement of a quality of a film as to how much money it makes. Yeah, shithead, that's how it works. Yeah. All right. And so after they have cleared the room, thanks to all their gizmos and gadgets and bullshit. Yeah, Loveless, he grabs the real President Gray. He's like, oh, you're coming with me, President Gray. I'm taking you hostage. And Rita is like, you're coming with me too. I haven't even given you a nickname yet. I think it's going to be Latinia. <laughs> dude i forgot she was even in this scene (laughs) yeah it's at this point that will smith he gets kevin klein he's like hey man can you really build a flying machine based on the works of leonardo da vinci and kevin klein's like well of course i can i've been saying i could the whole movie everything i've ever given you has worked cut to the two of them on a flying machine yeah and there's a you know what would be a stirring moment where they go over the side of a cliff in it and then come up to the camera like swooping upward as the thing takes flight and it just looks shitty. It's it's one of those things where like you know it's a few years after Jurassic Park. Not everybody had this down. A lot of this looks awful. Yeah, but Sonnenfeld had made the Adams Family movies and Men in Black. They should have been able to pull this off a little bit better. But yeah, it looks really cheap. Yeah, a lot of this movie just feels like nobody cares. The, it feels very much like a movie that was tested and retested and and sanded down and polished and committee made. The only thing that was left was that was left by all this committee thinking was racism and dick jokes. That is what people <laughs> would respond to. As they're flying around, they drop these bombs on the spider that M. Emmett Walsh gave to them. <laughs> it's what I drink in the front at night here. It's full of my piss. You know, in Russia, (laughs) they use this as a bomb to make babies poop better. You boys can use this bombs. As they're flying around, Kevin Clyde looks to Will Smith and says, I think I'm going to name my machine the Air Gordon. So that's a play on Air Jordan. 
Oh, is that what it was? I never got it. I was just like, I don't know what this joke means. Well, yeah, it's 1998. Space Jam is probably in the theater across the hallway. <laughs> yeah, the, the website's certainly there, if nothing else. Will Smith and Kevin Klein, they're zooming around on this thing, and then they end up crashing into the top of the spider, and all of the Lovettes are there, and they're firing Gatling guns as they zip around, and we're we're at the finale of our film. Yeah, thank Christ. But the, unfortunately, it's got a number of endings a la Return of the King, where you're like, let's just wrap this up. So they kill Munitia, one of the Lovettes, just by crashing into the spider. It like knocks her over the side. That's one of those moments ah. of like, is she dead? Ah, I guess so. They're not going back for her, certainly. No. The other Lovettes end up taking Will Smith and Kevin Klein hostage. And Loveless is like, you know, I admire your spunk. <laughs> Why don't y'all join me and we can lick the underbelly of America together? Will Smith is like, I'd rather die or whatever. Oh, I can make that happen. Could you step two steps to the left, please? One more. Two big steps. You did two small steps. Y'all. Yeah, right there. Take this. And he hits a button and Will Smith falls through a trapdoor down to this lower level of the mechanical spider. I don't think the Rancor's been fed today, y'all. We're in for a treat. Loveless says, we may not have a woodshed, but that boy is going to get a whooping today. Yeah. I don't know why. It, every time it happens in this movie, I just, my shoulders drop a little bit more. My head bowed down. So a bunch of random henchmen show up to beat up Will Smith. And there's a bunch of hand-to-hand fighting as the Pistons and the gears of the spider are cranking around them. It's just all the villains from the Wrong Turn movies. They're all just these hillbillies with missing teeth and plates in their skulls and shit one of the guys gets a chain wrapped around his neck and tossed off the side where he is hung to his death which that kind of comes in a little bit later and the the one-liner because you know will smith's got a bunch of snappy one-liners in this movie the one-liner here is no more mr knife guy that made it into a, a an honest to goodness movie Dr. Loveless, he then transports his wheelchair <laughs> down on an elevator so that he can take on Will Smith himself. Before we get to Loveless, can I ask you a question? Sure. So the last Frankenstein monster guy that Will Smith fights with the plate in his uh-huh. head, he electrifies to death somehow, but I don't know how. I watched it twice and I can't figure out what kills him. What did Will Smith do to fry him? Well, he connected this one cable to the steam engine and then that through transference of electroconnectivity, went up to the, the chamber that was full of the uh, the electric eels that were inside of amniotic fluid. Gotcha. And then because they were so excited that the electricity shot down to Frankenstein, bringing him to life, wherein Robert De Niro spent the rest of his days trying to kill Kenneth Branagh. I remember that because that's where Will Smith says, my God, what have I done? And yeah, you're right. Okay. All right. That makes sense now. Right. Loveless comes down the elevator and I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to really just give him what for. Step back, ladies. There's a little more back and forth about racism slash you don't have legs and it's just the worst. Loveless transforms his wheelchair into this walking four-legged Doc Ock machine. Yeah. So that he's a little more mobile and he ends up getting the upper hand where one of his metal 
12 feet is on the face of Will Smith and he's going to crush his head. But then topside, President Grant and Selma Hayek and all of the Lovettes and Kevin Klein, they're all up there, you know, sort of dealing with their own level of mayhem. And then Kevin Klein kind of pops out that little Derringer. And then Loveless says like, ooh, hey, you think that tiny little peace shooter is going to do me in? You better think again, mister. Did you see the fuck machine I made? Unless it's that big or larger, I don't even get out of bed. Kevin Klein, he fires the gun. And at first, everyone thinks that he did not hit Loveless, but it turns out he shot something on the walking wheelchair and fluid sprays out, rendering the walking chair now useless. And then topside, this is where Kevin Klein has to beat up all of the Lovettes one by one, but he can't punch them. So he just sort of gracefully dismisses the women, not by punching back, but sort of dancing out of the way as they lunge at him. And so one by one, they all fall off of this marching spider. And then President Grant tells Kevin Klein, like, get over here, stop this marching arachnid. Uh, we're headed towards a massive cliff that's heading to quite possibly one of the grandest of canyons that I've ever seen. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Maybe the grandest of all the canyons. I don't know. Uh, we'll call it Big Canyon. And yeah, so there's... More racism coming. Right, there's that happening up there. They have to basically pull a bunch of levers to try to stop it, which it finally does. No, no, no. That's not what happens. On the lower deck, Will Smith, he slowly paces over towards Loveless, who's just a torso, right. as he's inching his arms backwards. And then Loveless eventually makes his way to, I don't know, like a reserve wheelchair Oh, right, or yeah. He fires his sneaky guns from the backup wheelchair. Not before calling Will Smith a fine dark warrior. <laughs> Yeah. Just knock it off, man. And when he shoots the gun, it almost hits Will Smith in the dick. It grazes his cock. Yeah. Like they have a shot of it whipping across his pants. And then it just bounces around and punctures some tubes. And that's what makes the spider like crumble and fall and sort of brace itself on the edge of the grandest of canyons. They come out of the side of this spider machine and it's Loveless held on by his chair and Will Smith is hanging on to him. Yeah. And so Loveless this is like, you know, I'm torn on the one hand, I want to preserve my own life, but on the other hand, my hatred of you makes me want to let go and kill us both. Then they do a repeat of the earlier scene of them trading euphemisms back and forth. Oh, I'll be a monkey's uncle. How did we arrive at this dark situation? That's the one where I was like, I can't believe. Like, even by the low standards of this movie, that seems incredibly tasteless, but all right. Will Smith's retort is, I'm as stumped as you are, Dr. Loveless. And then... Do you think the writer's room was like... Because, like, you know, they had, at some point they had uh, some people in a room together. Like, we got to punch this script up. We got to tighten it up and make it work. So for this scene, everybody around the room, we're just going to take it around the horn. I need as many euphemisms for black people as you can think of. Nothing is too racist. Nothing is off the table. I think they watched a bunch of old episodes of Hee Haw just to really get in the right frame of mind and just let the good times flow. Right. What What was the... the, the according to Archie Bunker on this one. That's really where we need to live. Loveless says, I could pull this lever here and it would kill us both, but I don't want to die. How about you, Mr. West? Although you are as black as the night, inside your yellow boy. The Back to the Future axiom, you mean? I guess so. So he already got saved by Bulletproof Vest. 
So, you know. so Will Smith pulls the lever that's going to drop them both, but he grabs the knife guy who was hanging from the chain and saves himself while Loveless falls, uh, presumably to his death. Yeah, the physics of none of this makes any sense at all. If you're falling that far and you grab a corpse attached to a chain, that head's popping off like a soda bottle. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be you hanging onto a corpse as you fall. <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh shit that didn't work like i thought at all and how's he gonna climb up i get that will smith is physically fit but to climb up a corpse and then onto this chain that's gonna take some real upper body strength that's american ninja type acrobatics we're talking about here well how does he get back up into the spider hey don't worry about it fade to black yeah fade back in and we're in washington dc is or no we're out in the you desert know, we're, right? yeah promontory point we actually nailed the spike and grant is like you know i'm creating a secret service if you two idiots want to be part of it. No, you'll be agent number one and you'll be agent number two. And then Kevin Klein says, uh, sir, um, which of us is agent number one and agent number two? And he's like, does it really matter, Gordon? No, 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 sir. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to you. <laughs> right. He's so easy with the delivery of those lines. He's uh, he's the best. And then Grant <laughs> says, I'm taking your train. You blew up mine. So best of luck. It's technically his train. Right. Then someone Hayek shows up. Hey, guys, remember me? I was in this movie. Well, it turns out that the guy who I was looking for, I said was my dad. Well, he's actually my husband. And here he is. Bye-bye. And off they go. I know I said that he was uh, my father. He's actually my husband. I just call him daddy. Well, they're in Utah. Yeah. Take that, Utah. They go back to the spider. Like, that's, they decide that's how they're going to get back. And the last lines of this movie are them on this giant spider. Yep. And Kevin Klein says, Do you mind if I ask you a question? And Will Smith says, Actually, I do, Artie. And then the spider walks him into the sunset. Fade out the end. And I'm like, I don't understand that exchange. What do they, that wasn't like a thing that they said to each other, was it? No, no, Will Smith still hates him. I guess. And then the really one of the top five things in the movie happens when Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West plays over the credits and you don't have to watch this movie anymore. You can just listen to kind of a, a poppy Will Smith song. This is a terrible, terrible movie. It's one of the most racist movies I've ever seen in my life. I've seen Birth of a Nation. Uh, Roots was not quite as racist as this movie. You know, it's a real racist movie. White man's bird. Remember that where all the, all the white people are treated like black people and all the black people are treated like white people. When did that come out? I don't remember that one. John Travolta's in it. Oh, and... that's right. Holy shit. Yeah. I remember that movie coming out and thinking like, Oh no, that doesn't seem soul man. That's a real racist movie. Soul man is maybe the craziest racist movie. Where you're just like, much like this, where you're like, I don't know how anyone thought this was okay. Having a guy in a wheelchair calling Will Smith a coon in this movie, Chad. That is what happens in Wild Wild West. That is fucking bananas. I want to go on record right now and just say, when I rank these movies top to bottom at the end of the season, as we do each season, this is my bottom. There is nothing that will surpass. I will never watch Wild Wild West again, ever. And I know what movies are coming up. And they're terrible. They're really bad movies. <laughs> nothing will nothing will fall below this. Yeah, well, because those movies don't require a conversation with your kids after. It, not only is this movie not funny, it's one of those things where it's like, man, you could almost make the it's a product of its time argument. Right. 
I don't think it's a great argument, but you could make that if it were in service to, yeah, but the rest of the movie is just filled with great comedic performances and it's inventive and clever. And yes, there's this unfortunate racism that permeates the movie, but everything else about it is good. That's just not the case. It's that the movie itself is meandering and shitty and has characters that don't matter and no stakes. And like, it's a bad movie. And then it's also racist on top. And it's like, yeah, no, yes, no one should ever, ever, ever watch Wild Wild West again. Not just us. No one should. I not only burnt the cupcakes, but I frosted them with human feces. (laughs) Yeah. Take a bite. No, thank you. You know, I put way too much salt in the in the cake, so uh, I just uh, sprinkled it with arsenic to make it a little more bitter to really kind of even that out. You're gonna yeah. do nothing but wince in pain and vomit through the duration of your of this cake, and it could kill you, much like Wild Wild West. And you had two really talented actors mm-hmm. um, with both with great track records in this movie that essentially should be a paint by numbers buddy cop film. Speaking of which, Bo, yes, <laughs> would you care to talk about our next episode and what movie we will be watching that was based on a television show from long, long ago? Yes, the the movie that launched Dabney Coleman to stardom. It's <laughs> it's Dragnet featuring Dan Aykroyd and someone named Thomas Hanks. Mm. Um, an up-and-comer. It is a retelling of, of the classic Jack Webb television show and, and is thematically tied to this film in that it also has a rap theme song, except by Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. I forgot about that. Yeah, uh, City of Crime is the name of it. Dabney Coleman is a lisping pornographer, and that's all you need to know about Dragnet. <laughs> oh my god. So come back and see us in two weeks' time. Like, rate, review, tell a friend, do whatever you want to do. You can catch us on social media. Give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at picksixmovies at gmail.com. Uh, we're floating around social media. Um, well, any final thoughts on Wild Wild West? God, no. I, I'm going to flush it from my brain using whatever alcohol and substances are handy to kill any chance of short-term memory. I completely agree. I think I'm gonna, just going to go in the other room. I'm going to turn on uh, some national news and really try to let my mind be filled with stories and information that isn't about the challenges of race relations in these united states oh when was the last time you watched the news oh gosh just before trump was elected huh what's been going on i think you're gonna be in for a little bit of a surprise well nice well well, maybe we'll talk about that in two weeks yeah yeah i I think you might have something to say Thanks for listening, everybody. Wild, wild west. Wiki, wiki, wild, wild west.